Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Squarespace, Quip, The Great Courses Plus, the new podcast UFOMet, and our contributors at Patreon. In part one of our series on the disappearance of the light keepers of the Flannan Isles, we took you back to that long ago December 15th of 1900, when a passing vessel first noticed that the light at the Elon Moore Lighthouse did not appear to be lit. In the intervening century since this mystery began, investigators, scholars, researchers, and speculators have all mightily debated the fate of James Duckett, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. But the simple truth is, we will likely never know what happened to these men. We can only speculate ourselves, as is often the case with the stories we share on Astonishing Legends. But when it comes to speculation, we've developed methods, methods that are rooted in the deep exploration of every possible angle. We consider every eventuality, and whenever possible, we talk to the experts on the matter at hand. Keith McCloskey is just one of those experts. Author of several books, including two on the Astonishing Legends favorite, Dyatlov Pass. Keith has also written the definitive book on this case entitled The Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Elon Moore Lighthouse Keepers. And tonight, he is on our show to share what he learned in his extensive investigation of every aspect and every angle of this legendary disappearance. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The seas around Scotland and the Scottish coastline itself have never been a place for the faint-hearted mariner. Keith McCloskey. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the mystery of the missing Flannan Isles lightkeepers with special guest Keith McCloskey. We're back. Finally. So sorry for the delay, folks. If you didn't listen to that special announcement for last week, what it said was I actually somehow contracted pneumonia in the summertime while on vacation. Bring out your dead. Yep. See, back in the Middle Ages during the plague, I just would have thrown you out the second story window onto the street for collection. But I'm feeling much better now. Okay, good. (laughs) Some brief updates before we get to tonight's show. Our replacement round of coffee mugs are in, and they have been thoroughly tested by our home office, and the results have shown that Astonishing Al's face seems to be properly attached to this batch. Oh, look at that. You you made a little poem. You're a poet, and you didn't even know it. You can't squash raw talent. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We could try. Anyway, most of this batch is earmarked for replacements for those of you who had issues with the first batch, But there's another batch on this one's heels, so bear with us while we continue to get everything sorted out. Oh, please stop saying batch. Remember, (laughs) if you ordered one of the first batch and Al's face fell off, send a photo of his poor disfigured mug on the mug to blackmountainprinting at gmail.com along with your address and the home office will get you a replacement post haste. Meanwhile, we'll keep you posted when those replacements have all been taken care of and a new batch of mugs 
with a properly attached face is ready for consumption. And although it had nothing to do with the problem the first round had, they were improperly made, just so you know, we would still like to reiterate that these mugs are hand wash only for longest life. But still, his face shouldn't come off if you run it through the dish. Our, our preliminary testing has put them through the dishwasher and they've been fine, just for the really? record. That's, but you're not supposed true. to. You're supposed to hand wash them. Well, so it's so, like an underwriter's laboratory. You've actually had uh, people uh, put them in the dishwasher, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. okay. All right. We're going in a white lab that. coat. Because yeah. <laughs> most people aren't going to bother with that. They're just going to stick them in the dishwasher, which is the I way it know. should be. But, well, but that's what I did with our first round, the very first round of mugs. They yeah. were supposed to be dishwasher or hand wash only. And yeah. I put mine in the dishwasher. And it held up a long time, but eventually the graphics the faded, the color changed that's tr- on it. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. true. All right. Well, anyway, uh, so we keep missing the boat on this next tidbit here, but we finally did it this year and we registered Astonishing Legends for the Podcast Awards. So if you'd like to show your support for us, go to tinyurl, that's actually a website, tinyurl.com. Well, it's a custom URL I made because the real one is way too long. So you spell that. It's just so you guys know, it's tinyurl.com. So go ahead for it. Yeah, exactly. Right. That'll take you to the website because it's the other one's too long. Well, (laughs) tinyurl.com slash AL podcast. There you you go. Custom make your own URL. So I made it AL podcast because we'd already used astonishing once and we already used the legends once a long time ago. (laughs) So this is tinyurl.com slash AL podcast. So go there. Anyway, you you do that. And then basically you just confirm that you're not a ballot box stuffing robot. And then after you do that, you'll find us under society and culture where you can vote to nominate us in that category. I know we don't really fit any categories because that's just how... Yeah, they still don't yeah. have a category for us. No one, or for no many one of our, <laughs> no our brother really. shows. Yeah. There but, isn't but, yeah, one. Yeah, but you'll see, if, you'll see some other fellow podcasters in there with similar themed shows. So that's got to be the one, I guess. Anyway, well, whatever your favorite podcast is, go in there and nominate them because we have a lot of friends that you'll see in there and just show your support for the ones that you like. And I think you can also vote to nominate us in the people's choice category too. You know what? I went in there today and we still weren't listed. There's a drop down menu when you go to nominate with all the shows. We still weren't in there. No, well, I just... But we're, we're going to be soon, right? Yeah, I just signed up like a day or two ago, so I'm sure okay. there is a human-motivated or engineered vetting process to make sure you're not a joke podcast. <laughs> hopefully hopefully we can pass the, yeah, not a joke podcast stage and, <laughs> and actually end up in the category. Uh, yeah. But if you don't see us in there, keep checking back and, uh, you know, to see when we'll pop up. I did this morning. We Yeah, like you said, I, we weren't in there yet. But uh, just remember, though, if nominated, we will not run. And if elected, we will not serve. <laughs> well said. Yeah, right. I, I'm sorry. I don't know what politician or what era that would be. Probably, I, I feel like it's a quote War. from... That old comic strip that I used to read when I was growing <laughs> up that was the political one. Not uh, Doonesbury? No. Not Doonesbury. The other one with the guy was like a hawk. He was a journalist, but he was a falcon or, or an eagle or something. Oh, va- yeah, vaguely. See, I think yeah. we read different papers. I don't know. I can't remember. Okay. Anyway, uh, just remember. Yeah. So to, if you want to vote for us, tinyurl.com slash AL podcast. Two more things. Next week, we're going to be in Amelia Earhart's hometown of Atchison, Kansas, courtesy of the folks at Chasing Earhart, and there's a lot going on. Firstly, we have a fan meet-and-greet along with the guys from Generation Y, Aaron and Justin, on Thursday, July 19th at 8 p.m. at the Elks Lodge in Atchison. 
Talk about, this is going to be our most rural meetup of all time. Uh, We're going to be really out in the sticks on this one. And on Saturday, July 21st at 2 p.m. in the O'Malley McAllister Auditorium at Benedictine College, we will be part of an amazing panel discussion about Amelia's life, legacy, and disappearance. So if you can make that, please check it out. Yeah, and if you're unable to get there, you can find it online at Facebook, where it will be streamed live at Chasing Earhart's Facebook page. The event itself is free, just like the meetup, but they would like to have a headcount. Uh, there's instructions on, on what to do on our website at astonishinglegends.com. You can go there, and there'll be links where you can RSVP. So it doesn't cost you anything, but they need to get a headcount. So uh, if you are thinking of attending, please do that for them, and they can get enough seats and uh, refreshments and all that kind of good stuff ready for everybody. With regard to the panel, reservations are available for that at chasingairheart.rsvpify.com. That's Chasing Earhart. Uh, you know how to spell her name. I hope you do anyway. .rsvpify.com. So if you go to that link, you can uh, make sure that you've got a seat at that panel, which I guarantee you is going to be pretty amazing. And we'll make sure that Tess gets links onto our, all of our social media platforms. So if you don't follow us, which I know most of you don't, because I know how many people do, and I know how many people listen to the show, and it's, I think, only about a tenth of you guys are following us. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook, we're in two places. We have a main Facebook page, and then we also have a closed group that is very well moderated. There is no uh, nastiness in there. No nastiness allowed. <laughs> so if you want to check it out, right. um, we'll be posting that information in there. It's a good place to follow us. Also, you know, maybe you're not a Twitter person, but I am personally most highly active on Twitter. And you can pretty much find out whatever we're doing on there at any given moment. So just, yep. uh, just a heads up about all of that. Yeah, anyway, that's a good point. Once again, it's on the website, the main page, uh, astonishinglegends.com. And also it's on the page for, I'll keep putting it up there, for each episode that we release well, I guess this is it <laughs> until we're actually there. So just go out to the website. You can see the instructions and links to, I, I think, the Facebook. Uh, am I going? Interested? Not interested? That kind of thing. Uh, you can click on that. And uh, we hope to see you there. Yes. And uh, since we're in Kansas next week, there is no show. But if you check your podcast dials out, you can find us guesting on episode 100 of Hillbilly Horror Stories with Jerry and Tracy Polly, and also as guests on episodes 81 through 84 of Groundhog Minute. Uh, some of those are still pending, but they're going to be out soon with Sean German and Dave Palace. Yeah, Scott uh, may have been inebriated a little on, on this Billy <laughs> Horror Stories show. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I could just hear... I'm setting a bad example for the kids here. It's like our friend Travis. I just heard a lot of ice tinkling and... Uh, yeah. Not a lot. No, actually, it was a pretty lively and fun conversation that we had. And then, of course, uh, as is Scott's tradition, he gets up and leaves in the middle of the interview, like he did on the YouTube show. To refill my beverage. To, re- <laughs> to freshen his <laughs> beverage, and then yeah. I'm left there hanging, except I didn't... I, to be I fair, I was doing left. that interview from a hotel room on vacation with my family, that, so... I, you're on vacation, yes, I'll give you Right that. before I got pneumonia. <laughs> okay. That was like the day before I came down with the early symptoms of pneumonia, which I will admit I had mistook for a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... Uh, some of that in there somewhere is excusable, so I'll, I'll give you that. But we were on the podcast, Groundhog Minute, which is a minute-by-minute analysis of the fantastic, classic, 
movie, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. And Scott and I get into it uh, towards the end or towards one of the, I think maybe a uh, minute 83 or something. We, we get into the details, the finer points of Bill Murray's uh, performance here, all, all the nuances. And uh, it's kind of, of a Phil. lively discussion. It's a lively yes. discussion. Yes. Of Phil, the self-centered newscaster <laughs> who turns his life around. So in any case, check us out there and we'll be back the week after next with an exciting new series. Okay, now that that's all out of the way, we need to get into our interview with Keith. We just had so much fun with this. I do need to add some disclaimers on this interview. Uh, there was a couple of things. One was that Keith's headset wasn't working properly, so he had to, I think he's going off his computer mic there. Um, so there's a little bit more background noise than usual. And also, I was still fighting a pretty serious cough with my pneumonia, and I yep. managed to mute my channel 99% of the time that happened, but there's a few that <laughs> snuck through. Sarah did the best she could, our editor, to get them out, but you might hear uh, one or two coughs in there. Yeah, so th there's more pneumonia that. noise than usual. So yeah, yeah, more pneumonia noise than usual. <laughs> and also there's a phone pinging, which uh, I was going to blame on Keith, but we're pretty sure it was it forced. It could be uh, coming, through the, uh, coming through the laptop. There's a lot going yeah, on so, here, folks. There's at least but four But there's only four or five now. of those. We're making it sound like it's all through it. It's not really. Just ignore it and uh, don't pick up your phone every time you hear it in the interview. The interesting parts of the interview are captivating enough because Keith has actually been to the island, right? Yeah, yeah, it is pretty amazing. And he's got personal experience there. I mean, he's set foot on it. He's climbed around on it. He's been over there a few times. And that's really the kind of person that we want to talk to about a story like this is someone who's been there since we don't have the opportunity to go there. Although in our future, hopefully we can travel more. That's what we're hoping on. That's the next step. For yeah, Smash I don't know if that's Legends. on the list, but, but, yeah, <laughs> but I'd love but, to check um, it out. But yeah. Keith's saying already that probably the only way to safely get there is helicopter pretty soon. Nowadays, um, yeah, you'll hear that in the interview, uh, the conditions of the place nowadays, and yeah. it is blustery to say the least. Quickly, Forrest, I just yeah. want to remind everyone of some terminology real quick. If you hear it come up in the interview and we didn't take the time to explain it, you might remember from part one, we talk about the NLB. That's the Northern Lighthouse Board, which is the mm -hmm. uh, governing body of all the lighthouses in Scotland. And uh, they're still around. They're the ones that were in charge of the investigation and developing the lighthouses. And so if you ever hear Keith talking about the NLB, that's what that is. And just briefly, we're going to remind everyone the hierarchy of the lighthouse keepers because there's almost a military-type order to it. There's the PLK, which is the principal lightkeeper. In this case, that was James Duckett. We, in part one, called him James Ducat. But after we heard Keith say Duckett, we're changing it and pretending we said it right the whole time. And <laughs> oh, then yeah. there's the ALK, that's the associate lightkeeper, who's next in line after the principal lightkeeper. The principal lightkeeper is like the captain of the ship. And then the lowest rank is the OLK, that's the occasional lightkeeper, which, and the associate lightkeeper in this story was Thomas Marshall, and the occasional lightkeeper who was on the island at this time was MacArthur, and he uh, was an interesting character, you'll hear us talking about him, but he, you know, is kind of an on-call guy who, in theory, should have only been there for a short period of time, but because the other existing lightkeeper had been out sick for quite some time, MacArthur had been there for several months, which was a long appointment for an occasional. So that's the PLK, the ALK, and the OLK, and then the NLB is the Northern Lighthouse Board. Exactly. And also, uh, I tried to get the pronunciation right, but somebody who's actually Scottish, Louise Palmer, told us, Elon Moore. So I, I think I was close. Uh, anyway, so if you hear that uh, in part one, just ignore that especially when I say it really dramatically. <laughs> yeah, after you send the email to us about how to say things. <laughs> right. Thank you, Which, Louise. by the way, we love those, especially from people who are local to the areas we're discussing. No, no, so she was incredibly way, don't, nice Don't take it. that as yeah. a... Yeah, we, we love getting emails. As, as uh, somebody said, we're 
we're fond of uh, getting the language right when we can. So oh, I think that was her. She loves the way we say Edinburgh too. So yeah, Edinburgh. <laughs> Very good. Well, one last interesting thing I want to say before we get to it is that Keith had actually spoken to the last surviving lightkeepers from the Flannan Isles before they all passed away. So people that, that were there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Pretty amazing. And uh, that's the true way you get some insight from the people who work there. So that's fascinating in itself. So there you go. All right, let's get to it. We would like to welcome author Keith McCloskey to the show. We're very lucky to have him on tonight. He has someone that we were pursuing from the beginning on this. It took a little while to get in touch with him. He has written a book called The Lighthouse. Keith, you're going to have to help me with the actual island name. I know I'm going to screw it up. The Mystery of the Aileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers? Aileen Moore. Elon Moore. It's known as the Flamans generally. I mean, yeah. uh, Elon Moore is the main island, but the whole group is the Flamans. And most people, I have to say, tend to know it as the Flamans. Well, there you go. Because, yeah, it is. This mystery is most notably called the Flannan Isles mystery or the Flannan Isles disappearance, right? What first attracted you to this mystery? I have friends who live up close to that side of the coast of Lewis who I've known for many, many years. And I, I say I have to be careful because two of them died recently, oh. sadly, just, you know, age and what have you. But uh, I used to go up and stay with them as a, as a young man, you know, when I was a student. And that's when I first came across the story. I'd, I'd never heard of it before. And I, I more or less forgot all about it. And then years later, I happened to be in my local antique. There's an antique arcade here, and there was a book on mysteries. So I picked it up, and lo and behold, one of the mysteries was the Flannans. And I'd, I'd literally forgotten all about it. So this was after I'd been to the Diathlog Pass. So I thought, well, this is a, a great follow-on. And so, you know, especially with the connection that I had, you know, with my friends having the place up there on the uh, west coast of Lewis. So it, it all really came together from that. In some ways, it intrigues me more than Diathlov, because I know the Diathlov story is a strange one, but the thing with the Flannans is that the men disappeared completely, absolutely vanished into thin air. And sure. that's what I found so compelling about it, that I always think there's more of a mystery if the you know there's a complete disappearance, like you can find a body and you can make all sorts of conjecture about it. It could have been this, but if there's no body, you think, well, what happened to them? They're just gone completely. That, that's why I, I think it attracted me more as a real mystery, more so than Diatlov. So I won't dwell too much on Diatlov. We're talking about the Flannans here, but, uh, but that's why I was really attracted to this story. Well, it's a compelling story, and your book is so well-researched. It, it, the narrative structure of your book follows how we try to do every episode of our show, and I found it very enlightening, so I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of our listeners will go out and pick it up. What we should tell you here is, obviously, you're coming into part two of our series on this, and what we did in part one is we really covered the incident itself pretty thoroughly, so our listeners are already familiar with what happened. I think what we'd like to talk to you about is kind of the ensuing aftermath and the investigation and the theories surrounding the different possibilities. I know for me, and I, and I can't say for you, Forrest, you can tell me, but mm -hmm. like I know for me... This mystery was something I was familiar with, but it was just kind of vague. It was out in the ether. And I think in my mind, I was one of those people that thought, well, it was a rogue wave. It's a rogue wave. And, and when we first started our show about four years ago, we had done some research on rogue waves when we were covering the Mary Celeste 
story. That's and, right. Yeah. 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 And I thought, well, that must be what happened. But once I read your book, I wasn't convinced that that was the real story or the whole story. Maybe it was just part of the story. So, you know, what Forrest and I would like to do is is pick up where we left off, which is sort of starting with Robert Muirhead's investigation and what his conclusions were when he examined the island and tried to come up with a solution. How would you summarize that? Okay, well, the first thing to note about Robert Muirhead's investigation is the fact that he was the only person who investigated it. There was no fatal accident inquiry. The fatal accident inquiry legislation came into being in 1895 in Scotland. You know, Scotland has its a lot of its own laws, as you probably know. But the FAI legislation came in five years before the men disappeared. So on the face of it, you, you've got three guys who are at a place of work, really, and something's happened to them, obviously. It's presumed they're all dead, and yet there's no fatal in accident inquiry. There's no involvement by the police or or any any other party for that matter. It's like this company is in charge of, if you like, various installations doing a job of work, which is really what it is, whatever you have romantic notions you have about lighthouses. There are men who have to be there to light, put the lights on so ships don't go into the rocks. So they're, they're basically working in their place of work. And they're letting somebody from that company produce a report to say, well, I think this happened and they probably are all dead. And they say, well, yes, thank you very much. We won't investigate any further. There won't be any legal inquiry either, or there's a fatal accident inquiry, but the Lord Advocate could have taken it upon himself to have looked into it further and said, we need to investigate this thoroughly. But they didn't because I don't know if you're aware of all the documents that are in in Edinburgh, but I've seen the document that came back saying, we've looked at all the uh, documents and the outline you've given us of the case, and we have decided there's no need to look at this any further. So that was the one thing that struck me as highly peculiar. And Robert Muirhead was really, how would you describe him in a, a, say, a large factory? He wasn't the chief executive officer or the president. He was basically a step up from the men under him. I mean, he was a slightly different class, probably a middle class, as opposed to the working class men who were actually manning the lighthouses. But he was middle management, let's say, maybe a little bit higher than that. But he was entrusted with the whole thing. There's a few odd things that came out of it. When the telegram was sent to Murdoch, James Murdoch, the secretary of the Northern Lighthouse Board, he instructed Muirhead to get up there as quickly as he could and find out what had happened. And it was Murdoch uh, who had, um, I mean, this is the chief executive, if you like, who decided he'd arranged for various men to be called in to man the lighthouse while, you know, to get it going again from other stations. And then he literally took a complete step back from it. But I'll come on to him in a minute because there's a bit more to that. And remember, this is Boxing Day, although uh, in Dewar, Scotland, you know, everything stops for Christmas and doesn't stop. The celebrations, the holidays don't stop until the middle of February, almost as the way it seems sometimes. <laughs> but So it was Boxing Day, 26th of December, when it was discovered that they were missing. So um, Robert Muirhead then head straight up to Lewis, which took, took him two to three days to get up there. You can fly from Glasgow in about an hour and 15 minutes now to Stornoway, but in those days, 
he'd have had to make his way by train across to Oban and then make his way up either by sea to the west coast of Lewis or by train further north to, say, Ullapool and then get across on the ferry. So it took him some time to get up there. When he uh, arrived, the Hesperus was waiting for him on the other side of the island and took him out. And it's something that uh, I've chewed over quite a bit, what he did there, uh, when he got there. He searched the island, as you'll know. They all had a good look around to see if there was anything that had been missed or possibly find any clue. But, and then he started to write his report. I believe that he started to write his report actually on the Hesperus. I believe that he came ashore from the Hesperus and spent most of the day looking round. It's winter as well, so the daylight hours are short. I don't think he spent any time on the lighthouse. I think he was out on the Hesperus with Captain Harvey. Harvey had taken command of the situation until he arrived. But whether it's peculiar, because I get the feeling from looking at the documentation and what he says about it, that he must have formulated something in his mind about dealing with it very, very quickly, because the report was out, produced in within 10 days from his arrival back in Edinburgh. He took everything with him from the lighthouse, documentation-wise, except the visitor's book. And you can go into conspiracy theories as to why that would have happened. But the visitor's book is usually, well, is, in lighthouse parlance in the NLB, it was called the stranger's book. Now, that book is the only thing that has survived from that day. Everything else has virtually disappeared that was actually in the lighthouse itself. But the visitor's book was always kept separately because, it, you know, especially on a place like the Flannans, you hardly had visitors because it was such an awkward location to get to. Other lighthouses would probably get fairly regular visitors. And every person who came into the light, into an NLB lighthouse had to be entered in the book who wasn't working there. So that's the only thing that tells us, if you like, who had been out to the lighthouse since it was opened. The interesting thing about it is um, Robert Muirhead and his wife were on the Flannans, on the, uh, they went out for the day on the 7th of December, one week and one day before the men disappeared. I don't know if you want to go into theories, there's a bit of a conspiracy theory there as to why Muirhead felt he had to remove all the documentation. From what we've heard uh, from your investigation on the subject here, that there didn't really seem to be anything to amiss. He would have had to have taken the logbook and various documents with him rather than do the, the entire investigation on the island. He had to do it on the ship or back on the mainland. So it's not unusual that he would have taken all these documents with him. Is that correct? It's certainly not unusual. Um, but like I say, there is a, th a theory about why he did so. You know, you think, well, the logbook is a working document. Why not just see the pages that were relevant to the day the men were missing right. and, and then have it taken ashore? and placed back up there. But uh, the trouble is none of the logbooks have been kept. But that one in particular, the, you would expect it, as it was such an important document, to have had a, a pride of place might be uh, the wrong word to use, but certainly right. such a prominent document to have been kept somewhere safe and nobody knows where it is. Uh, you know, it's just disappeared. Perhaps in somebody's old collection in an attic somewhere, but uh, it doesn't seem like there was any 
kind of cover-up, as a lot of people would say. And I think also you had mentioned previously Vincent Gaddis in his book had inflated the claims made in the logbook, you know, by saying the men were weeping and praying yeah. and during the storm. And you think that that's perhaps just to make it tremendously more dramatic, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the weather records don't back up what Gaddis was saying anyway. And uh, right. I probably wouldn't have had access to him when he wrote what he did. That particular day was uh, building up into a very strong gale, but it certainly wasn't a storm to end all storms that would uh, cause a man of 23 years of lighthouse experience, as Duckett was, to be weeping, and uh, right, right. the rest of them brain. It's just one shouldn't knock other people's views, but, you know, a bit of right. dramatic overkill, I think. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Sam, now back to the show. From the evidence that he had gathered, how is he forming, uh, Muirhead that is, forming his conclusions? It's largely based on, of course, the damaged equipment that he found. The first thing he talks about in his report is the wind. He talks about that and then he dismisses it instantly. And I say this on any interview I've done with this. The winds are tremendously powerful. They can lift you right off your feet and carry any distance. He talks about the wind, and the prevailing wind there is literally sweeping across the North Atlantic, so there's nothing to impede it. And then it hits the flannons, literally straight on from the west, directly on. To make your way down for, on the island, to make your way from the actual lighthouse down to that west landing, you have to go into the wind coming from the west. What he says in his report is that it cannot have been the wind because the men would have had time to throw themselves down onto the ground before they reached the other side and were blown over it. What he doesn't mention is the fact that they would have had to have got there in the first place because they'd have been coming from almost not quite the eastern side, but they'd have had to make their way down against the wind to have reached the West Landing in the first place. And it seems a peculiar thing to talk about because one of the people uh, that I've done that's really helped me research this book, I, I spoke to former NLB lighthouse keepers, including two that were on the Flannans. They're the only two left alive that have been on the Flannans. But uh, another one, uh, Alistair Henderson, has been a great help. And he wasn't on the Flannans, but he was telling me, and I'm, again, I say this in all the interviews, just to give people an idea of how strong the wind is. He's a big lad, Alistair. He's over six foot and weighs, um, at the time he told me, he was weighing over 16 stone. And he, uh, he was carrying a fridge and the wind lifted him off his feet with the fridge and, wow. and carried wow. him about 10 or 15 feet. You know, so it, it shows you the power of the wind, what it can do. And uh, that's one of the theories, but I'll come on to that later. But just coming back to Muirhead, so he, he dismisses the wind almost straight away, and then he goes into all the damage at the West Landing and, you know, the, the force that the turf has been pulled away from the top, which it undoubtedly was, the top of the... Um, the island, uh, that point there that he's talking about is 110 feet above sea level. So it's obviously been a massive wave that's hit it. The safety rails are all twisted and bent. I mean, you know the story. And there's ropes everywhere from the box that was up there all scattered all over the place. Really, it's it's been a massive 
blow on that western side of the island. To me, he's bringing in that focus of saying, look at this, this is awful. This is obviously what's happened. But having said that, he does say in his report, and he alludes to the fact that there were storms after that. And I mean, I'll come on to that in a minute with the weather, Mm -hmm. the weather models we did. He does admit that particular damage may not have been the damage that was caused the day they disappeared, which it isn't. But he he focuses so much on it. And the other odd thing is um, Joseph Moore, who was the first person to walk into the lighthouse and find there was nobody there. They could see the island was deserted when the Hesperus arrived. But Joseph Moore was the first ashore, first up to the lighthouse to start looking for them, thinking maybe they'd been incapacitated, but he found it empty. But it seems odd that he asks Moore to produce his own report to say what he found. And it it seems peculiar. You, You would expect a man like Robert Muirhead to take all the witness statements and anybody else that may, you know, have some kind of input and draw his own conclusions. I did find it odd that he asked Moore, who's really a blue-collar worker, to write an extra report to kind of back up more or less what he was saying uh, in some ways. It almost as if it supports his report, in my view. And Joseph Moore would not have done something like that without being told to. The um, And I know the NLB will probably hate me for saying this, but uh, <laughs> the way it was in the NLB from its earliest days up until... All the lighthouses were manned where if you were a, a lighthouse keeper and you weren't the principal, you did what you were told. You didn't step out of line. I've been told that visits to the lighthouses by the superintendent or any other dignitary from number 84, as they called it, the head office, you didn't get spoken to and you spoke if you were spoken to. Mm. That literally carried, that would have been no different in the 1960s to what it was in in 1900 when the three men were there it was very much um master and servant isn't quite the best way to put it but blue collar and white collar definitely have you been in touch with the modern day nlb and how have they treated you in in terms of your attempts to get information and how do they feel about your investigation uh well (laughs) this is a tricky one to answer very very tricky the nlb don't like inquiries about the flannans I mean, the NLB don't like inquiries full stop, but especially uh, on the Flannans. Um, From my talk with former lighthouse keepers, uh, the NLB ones, any inquiries that came to a lighthouse had to be rebuffed and directed to number 84 George Street. You did not talk to anybody, especially the press or whatever. The lady at the NLB who has now left well, I, did try and help me as much as she could, I will say that. But the overall ethos, if you like, of the NLB is that they don't welcome inquiries about the Flannans. And you'll probably be referred to the archives in Edinburgh to do your own research, which is fair enough because all the documentation is there. And if you want to do anything on the Stevensons who built it, um, that's also all archived as well. Right, because it is a matter of public record, right? It's still, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you this then, getting back to the contemporary times, do you feel that the NLB had put some pressure on Muirhead, of course, to come up with an answer quickly because this was of great interest to the region at the time as a mystery, 
Do you feel that there was some pressure put on Muirhead to solve this thing very quickly, come up with an answer that we can all digest and move on from this? Or did they even care that much? It's difficult to say. I I believe there was pressure. But you see, part of the pressure uh, was Muirhead's own pressure on himself. He he wanted to distance himself from it, I believe, because what he says is, I was the last to bid them adieu. He doesn't say that he was there only one week before they disappeared. And he doesn't say that his wife was there, which leads you to think, what was he doing there with his wife? Um, The Flannans was his pet project. There's no doubt about that. It was the latest lighthouse he had. He personally handpicked the men that served on there, apart from Donald MacArthur, who was covering for somebody. But he he felt a a kind of a, a, it was his pet project, if you like. But, and his visit with his wife was unusual because the superintendent didn't generally go visiting lighthouses with his wife for a bit of a jolly. And <laughs> and, the other, and the other thing is that um, the Flannans is not a place you would want to visit in the middle of winter either because it's literally one storm after another or one gale after another. And to get out there, it wasn't easy to land on it. So you imagine a Victorian lady in all her finery. She has to go in a rowing boat and with the sea rocking about and be helped ashore on it. So it was an odd time to make a visit. If you're going to make a visit, do it in the summer. It's quite likely that his visit on the 7th of December was the first anniversary of the when the lighthouse became operational. So that's maybe all I was to do is so he thought he'd maybe go out there, have a look around and take his wife for the day. And of course, to the local families, the lighthouse families and the keepers and all the people there, it'd be like a minor royalty coming to visit. So uh, it would have been, you know, a good day out. But he, he seemed to want to distance himself from the fact because he doesn't mention it he didn't say i was there only a week before he just says i was the last to see them basically i mean put it this way if if you look at it from your own perspective uh, say somebody had died that you'd seen a week before and it was to do with your work and basically you fancied a day out of the office and took your wife along and the three men all disappeared a week later or were killed or whatever you'd feel possibly a certain amount of guilt by association maybe i'm not i mean he obviously is although there is a theory about that which i'll come on to but he he probably thought well i was there and um it doesn't feel good to have been the last to see them so maybe wanted to play his part in it down quite a bit and that's basically what happened he didn't mention it he had personally handpicked these men uh, based right. on their character, right? To yeah. and so yeah, you I would imagine you felt a lot of guilt, perhaps that uh, yeah, you know, he, guilt, guilt that is yeah. the word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. MacArthur seems really fascinating to me because, unless I misunderstood from reading your book, he seems to be well respected back in town. He's helping to build the church, that sort of thing. He's the one that was doing that, right? And then, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But then he's also known to be a little bit of maybe a drinker and a hothead as that's well. Right. He had a fierce temper, apparently, I've been told by descendants of him. Okay, so that's good. The family's on the same page with us here. So that's he's, he's an interesting individual. He's got a lot of dimension to him. And he was the OLK, the occasional. Yes, he was an occasional, yeah. How much duty were the occasionals supposed to do regularly? Well, they were there on call when they were needed. And this is part of the theory is that um, he had his own croft to attend to. You know, he had things to do and he had a family and his wife at home. 
William Ross had been struck down with an illness, and uh, it wasn't right. something that went on just for a few days. MacArthur had been out there since September, and um, he'd probably only just come off for a short, just a couple of days break. And uh, I would imagine you got regular leap, but not if you were an occasional. And occasional was the lowest of the low in the hierarchy of the NLB. And they did away with them not that long after this happened. But basically, you were on call. You should consider yourself lucky that, you know, you get a job with us when we need you. A bit like zero hours contracts today. Only there was there wasn't much work up there. So but the possibility that there was occasional work hence the name, was good for them, you know, because they were called upon from time to time. He was called upon. But this particular occasion, I suspect he he didn't expect it to go on for so long. Right. So he's been out there three months. If if he does have, if he has a drinking habit, he's not going to have any alcohol or access to it unless he took it. Even if he brought a stash, he's probably out. And then, and then he's missing his family. And then on top of that, it's almost Christmas. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, probably burning a short fuse, I would think, by yeah, then. Really? Yeah. And he's the gentleman who, from what we can tell from the scene, is the one who left without his weather gear. That's correct, yeah. He, call, he called it his wearing coat. It wasn't uh, the proper weather gear uh, that Duckett and Thomas Marshall had. It was a kind of a, a jacket for outdoors. He called it his wearing coat, but it was what he needed just for bad weather. But he that was left on the peg. Well, let me ask you this then. At the time when this was going down, and of course, as we just mentioned, there was a lot of local and regional interest in this mystery. What was the, the feeling about the investigation locally, as far as you can tell? Were people satisfied with this answer? You know, as you said, there's a lot of superstition there. Were they clamoring for justice of any kind? Or... Were people generally satisfied with the, uh, you know, with Muirhead's conclusion that it was most likely a wave, but as you had mentioned previously, there are possibilities of a lot of other crazy theories. What was the mood like with the with the locals, uh, well, other from, than just being fascinated? From what I, what I've read in newspaper reports and all the rest of it, the, um, it doesn't say locals were angry or whatever. Right. Um, I suspect that there was a kind of a subdued resentment, might be one way of putting it. Mm. I mean, obviously I can't speak for them, but you must remember the NLB was a major employer up and there's very little employment there. These right. the, the NLB was, you know, the, basically their word was law. They provided people with employment there, any victualling needed or whatever, any assistance needed with the, the Hesperus. They, they used locals for it. The men lived within the community as well. So they were a provider. You know, the men were paid wages. They'd spend it locally, et cetera, et cetera. So the NLB was not an outfit that you could afford to get on the wrong side of, and you wouldn't want to either. Right. Um, there was a gamekeeper, Roderick McKenzie, and his two sons were paid by the NLB to keep an eye out. You know, so there's a lot of people with vested interests in not annoying them. What they felt about what had happened is different. It's a strange old place in the, you know, the history of it in pagan times. Um, I was talking to somebody, you know, I'm probably get sued now by everybody on the West Coast of Lewis, <laughs> but they're, they're, you know, the few people that I've met, are, are, they're superstitious. They don't like outsiders particularly, and I think they, they were like that then. You know, they'd speak Gaelic, you know, that was the local language. 
Um, and any any outsider wouldn't have fitted in that easily anyway. Uh, MacArthur's wife, for instance, um, if I'm jumping ahead of myself here, there was a letter written by William Ross, which is in the archives, about her saying if the NLB could see their way to, you know, basically helping her get, yeah, I mean, she got a pension, obviously. Um, right. Though she wasn't entitled to one as he was an OLK. But uh, to see if they could get her back down to Woolwich, to that part of Kent where her family was from because she was, I mean, I don't think that she was treated as an outsider, but she, she'd come up with her husband because he'd been in the army and the, uh, I believe it was the Royal Artillery. She'd met her husband down there and he'd come up to live up there and she'd come up but not knowing anybody. So she was alone with the kids, didn't speak the language that well. So William Ross who had been the guy he was replacing, had written a letter saying, can you please help her out, get her back to her own people? And there was no reply to that or, or anything. And the upshot of it all was when I eventually managed to track down some of the descendants is it looked like she stayed up there in the end, that uh, they seemed to rally round her, if you like, happened to her husband. So she obviously stayed on quite happily and uh, their descendants are in Scotland now. So Oh, wow. But, yeah. Well, before we move on to the modern day investigation, just to kind of wrap up the era of Robert Muirhead, does it seem like he was obsessed with this for the rest of his life, or was there any evidence that he continued to look into it, or other entities or other authorities still looking into it, or after this report, was it just kind of laid to rest? After this report, I don't think it was ever to be mentioned again in the NLB. And um, there's no evidence that Muirhead wanted to look Well, why would he look further into it? What they wanted to do was say, this is what happened. You'll get your pension. You'll get your pension. You won't get any money. And that is an end to it. And there's the lid on top. And I think in some ways it broke Robert Muirhead because he died not, well, a decade after maybe, but he was never in the best of health. I mean, if you see the photograph of him in the book, he's a sort of a thin quite unwell-looking man, and I think in some ways it, uh, it probably finished him off because I, I'm sure he felt guilty over it. I'm sure he did. Probably felt bad for the loss of the men and the families. I mean, at the end of the day, the NLB was like a large family. You know, I know you had your blue collars and your white collars, but they were all doing quite a difficult job in trying circumstances. So there'd have been a kind of some kind of sense of a brotherhood there. Right. I mean, it, it kind of broke him as well. I, I believe it did. I yeah. believe it did because he, he died, I think it was 14 years later. Um, and he had not been well during, he, he'd, um, he'd been taking time off work at the NLB. He, he was also a, a counselor, a local counselor in Midlothian, but uh, he, he was very ill kept having to take time off work, go back and more illness. And it was just a downhill run for him. And the other thing that's worth mentioning here is um, Muirhead produced the report, but overseeing everything was a guy called uh, the new uh, NLB secretary. It's like Murdoch disappeared off the scene almost as soon as this happened. Mm. And one can only assume he was coming up to his retirement and he thought, well, this is a pretty good spot to get out. And his place was taken by a guy. His name was Coventry Dick Petty, who was a, a renowned lawyer. He, you can see his hand in a lot of the um, paperwork dealing with people who were looking for money 
Thomas Marshall wasn't married, but his father was after money, and Coventry Dick Petty was the man who replied to him, not Muirhead or anybody else, and said, well, as far as we're concerned, you're not getting anything. Um, you know, albeit not quite as blunt as that, but nearly. Right. Um, but he, he almost came in as a kind of a big man in the background, not too much to the front, but you can see his hand everywhere guiding it all. The thing is, with Edinburgh in those days, everybody at the top was connected. You know, the legal establishment, the Lord Advocate, Sure. The, all the senior lawyers, and he was a senior lawyer, so um, that's probably another reason why there wasn't a fatal accident inquiry. I suspect they didn't want people digging too deep uh, in case something unpleasant came out. Yeah, one, one, one aspect of it, which you probably know, is that um, Duckett had been fined for... Um, yeah. So people could say, oh, why were you drunk? Maybe the men felt they had to go to... Let's go into further detail on that for our listeners, just in case they don't remember the details. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Duckett had been fined for damage to a piece of equipment. It was only a few shillings, but it was a massive sum of money. But, you know, they weren't paid much, these guys. And um, the thinking behind it is... uh, And oddly enough, that fine, the only reference to it comes from his daughter who gave an interview to the Sunday Times. That's where that story comes from, because in Duckett's personnel file, if you like, each uh, lighthouseman had his own record. There was no mention of that fine. So, Is the, this the, the interview that you have in the book the, where she's like 89 years old when she gave it? Yeah. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah, that's the only place that that's actual story of the fine come back. Having said that, they did find people for damage to... There was one guy in there who... He was fined for damaging his sheets, you know, <laughs> you know his bed sheets and right. stuff like that. So it could be that maybe they put themselves in a dangerous position for fear that if there was damage to property, they might be fined again coming up to Christmas. You know, uh, who, who would want that? That's just conjecture, you know. Um, but certainly, if you don't have a, if you're not earning a lot of money, and people are going to fine you for, I don't know, a large wave hitting a box of ropes or something, you're going to take some care to try and make sure it's okay. What was their income like relative to cost of living? Because I mean, they have room and board, obviously, at the lighthouse. Do they also get assistance? I can't remember with the families because they're on a rock, so they have the families back in town. Are they getting assistance with that as well? They are. They, they had accommodation provided right. offshore. Um, so their income is for necessities, really, beyond that. Yeah. yeah they were, they're, they're, uh, everything on, on the rock is all found, if you like. Um, sure. But they weren't all of them provided with. You see, that's why it was such a sought-after position. because, And this continued well into, you know, right up to automation, because the people um, that I've interviewed for the book who were former lighthouse keepers they said it was a very strong incentive you know certainly in the earlier days because you were losing the roof over your head if you lost your job sure uh, you know families you know you'd, you'd have to find uh, find somewhere to live with your family because that, that was all provided for you eventually the grip was loosened in the i think it was the 1970s because what happened was whoever the local council was in that area became responsible for housing the lighthouse families not the lighthouse itself so there was a bit of a weakening of the grip there over the staff but it's a powerful hold over somebody if you you know if the house you live in it belongs to somebody else and you annoy them you're out with yeah. your Let's now bridge from, you know, the happenings and the conclusions of that time 
to your investigations and work with the Discovery Channel show, Unexplained Files, first of all, was there anything that had come up like evidence-wise or new theories or between the turn of the century and when you started working with the show and your research? And then uh, if you would, please take us into that uh, experience as well. When you asked, did Muirhead ever investigate anymore? I meant to finish that. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. No, no, sorry. I forgot what I was... Um, (laughs) He didn't investigate anymore. And as I say, Coventry Dick Teddy, the secretary of the, you know, the big boss, the whole thing was just put to bed. What revived all the interest in that story was uh, the poem by uh, Gibson. uh, (laughs) I can never get it right, whether it's Wilfred William Gibson or the other way around, but the the Gibson (laughs) poem, Flan and (laughs) Art, basically kicked it all off again that yeah. revived interest in it and and the trouble with that poem it's a good poem but the trouble is it brings in things that have now passed into you know fiction has come into fact about the uneaten meal and the knocked over chair and all this sort of that there was none of that but people believe it to be true because it's come from the uh, the poem but that kicked it all off again so over the years, the Flannan story, basically, it's been like a wave coming in, going out, coming in with mm-hmm. a revival of interest. Um, when Alderbert went out there, he was obsessed with the story. And uh, as you know, he developed his own theory about um, mm-hmm. what, what had happened with uh, one man being washed into the water and the other guy running back up to the lighthouse. But um which is plausible enough, but what you're asking people to believe there is one rogue wave knocks one guy in, the other one goes up, gets the other one, and then another rogue wave comes along and takes both of them. And the problem I, I had with Alderbert's theory is, and I've stood there where, well, I've been right down to the boat, I've obviously stood at the very bottom when the tide was out, walked all the way up, and uh, the tide, when it's they supposedly disappeared, the tide would have been just a little above the low water mark. So it would have had to have been an absolutely massive wave to have turned up. But the other interesting thing about it, though, is if there was two men down there and one of them falls in, the other one, it would have taken him 15 to 20 minutes to get back to the lighthouse to get MacArthur. It's a long way up, right? Well, it's not just a long way up. It it is a long way up. But, I mean, I I used to be a bit of a gym freak when I was younger, but not anymore. (laughs) But I'll tell you, I I actually wanted to see if I could run it. Um, Mm. But I've had problems with my knee. But I wanted to see how long it would take me to do it. And whether we know it wasn't MacArthur because he was in the lighthouse. But if it was Ducker, he was not a young man. He was in his early 40s. And Thomas Marshall was a big, strong, hefty bloke. So, sorry, guy, I'll say that again. <laughs> you can say bloke. You can say bloke. <laughs> we can yeah. hit. Yeah. 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 I wonder what the hell language this guy's talking about. <laughs> so, he, um, for someone like that who's uh, maybe six foot, 240 pounds, he's not going to sprint up there yeah. in five minutes. So it would have taken him the best part of whoever whoever did it, whether it was Ducker or Marshall, would have taken him 15 to 20 minutes at least to have gone from the bottom up to the top and then probably at least 10 minutes to get back down there. Right. And you'd think anybody in that time probably would have been swept under or whatever. Uh, that's the problem I have with that theory because people tend to look at it and think, oh, you just pop into the lighthouse, I'll get some help. Um, and you think that's going to be two or three minutes. It's not. It's nothing yeah. like it. It's really steep once you're up from the steps and the steps are slippery and dangerous and very, very steep. 
So you've got to get up those first, and then you've right. got to go up a, a steep slope to get back up to the lighthouse. So there would have been a fair old bit of time lag in there. So you have to ask yourself the question, when the other two came back down on Alderbert's theory, would this other person still have been in the water or would he have been dragged under wearing all his, all his gear? Yeah, It's not a bad theory. Is the water there on the western landing, does it continue vertical below the waterline? Yeah, or it's completely vertical. In the way it is now, the steps have been, because it's been hammered for the best part of 100 years, well, 100 years plus, those steps are gradually, been, we, we were basically having to use rocks climbing skills to get up what was left of them. Very dangerous. And soon they'll be washed away. And the only way you're going to be able to get onto that play, uh, island is by helicopter, unless you're a skilled mountain climber. They rise vertically up to 100 feet, 110 feet at that point at the West Landing. Wow. I'm Hannah, and when I'm not listening to Astonishing Legends, I'm sitting around waiting for the next episode of Astonishing Legends. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. Of course, weather here, I think, is the, or even anomalous weather and wave action is the star culprit here. How did you get contacted by the Discovery Channel for their series here? Because Scott and I watched this, uh, that's also added to our, uh, you know, our great interest into it, is that we saw this uh, a couple of years ago and uh, thought it was very well done. Uh, How did you get involved with that? And how did you get involved with their research and conclusions? I'd already worked with that team on the Diatlov story. Um, so, uh, So I knew them, if you like, and they asked me what I was working. In fact, the first time I met them about the Diatlov story, I said, yeah, I'd, I'd probably angling for a bit more work for myself. I said, uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting story up in the Flannans. Uh, it's made for TV. And they, they yeah. didn't like it to start with. And I thought, well, I did my best. I pushed it as hard as I could. And anyway, the right. first series, <laughs> lo and behold, they contacted me and said, uh, we've been having a think about that and we'd like to do it. So uh, that's how it came about. So if you like it, it grew out of the Diatlov story, but they weren't uh-huh. they weren't crazy about it to start with. But it's difficult to say that it's a better. It's not really a better. It's a different story, but I yeah. thought it was just as good. Uh, but they they have their own researchers as well. But basically, it was driven from my book, if you like. Uh, you've seen the program. I mean, it does mm-hmm. go in all the theories. It doesn't concentrate on one theory alone. Sure, sure. We, we did we did the strong say beast and you know the sea monsters and. Uh-huh. All, this kind of thing. Fortunate uh, connection here is that you got to work with the meteorologist for the Highlands and Islands University in Stornoway. Yes, that's great. Yeah, actually, I'll tell you, that was very, yeah. very interesting because before we went up there, I mean, uh, the book was out. I contacted the uh, meteorological office here um, for the weather records. I didn't know whether they'd have them or not. And they did. And uh, the guy there very kindly photocopied them all and sent them to me for the whole month of December and interesting, no, not that it's that interesting, but mm-hmm. <laughs> one point that came out of those records was it was the wettest month on record that they'd ever had up there. Wow. Which shows that the weather was bad generally the whole month, which makes it all the order that Muirhead should have chosen to kind of a, a social call in, in the middle of it all. But uh, the weather was pretty bad for most of that month. Leading on from that, uh, when we went up to Stornoway, the um, the film crew had set up this meeting with the meteorologist there, and um, he, he'd done his own 
they, they had their own records as well that they'd kept going back quite a while. But he'd combine them all and, and run several computerized models with it. And um, it was absolutely fascinating to see what happened that particular day because you can see the weather building up from about nine o'clock, which tallies with what was on the slate in the lighthouse. Right. Uh, it, it was blustery to start with, but as the day wore on up to six o'clock, it built up to quite a strong gale, which sounds bad, but it's up there. That's like yeah. a, a normal sort of day. Right. But incredibly, though, what happened two days later was the whole weather system was building up to the Monday, the 17th, to an almost just a, a storm not far off a hurricane, massively powerful one right over the Flannans. And, and he worked the graphics and it showed you the center of it coming until it landed right over the Flannans on the 17th. And that would have been pulling in waves from the west up to 70, 75 feet in height because of the long, the prevailing wind, the wind is southwesterly and it generally tends to come around till it's almost directly west. But you've got this really powerful weather system coming in with gigantic waves and not just one or two, but constantly. And that was what hit the Flannans on the 17th and caused all that damage. There were other storms later that month as well, but Muirhead does admit that the damage could have been caused later. But everybody tends to say, it's obviously a big wave. Look at all that yeah. damage. Well, that damage happened two days after they disappeared. Let's talk about that. I mean, because that was the point at which you're like, wait a minute. Wait, how is this not coinciding? Because where's our neat little package? Where's our answer? Where's our mystery solved here? As a big wave came in. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that, on, on how the timeline doesn't exactly work? Well, it, it, the timeline doesn't work in two ways. I'll, I'll come on to the second one in a minute. But everybody who looks at it, who doesn't really delve into it, thinks that obviously it was obviously hit by a gigantic wave. There's absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever, because the turf was torn away from the, the you know all the grass at the top. That's 110 feet up. And, and I mean, I, I've stood on there and looked right down and you think, my God, how could a wave reach up here? The thing, even a, say a 60 foot or a 70 foot wave has got tremendous force that will hit, but the force of it will carry all the water up and it'll be tons and tons of water, and that'll do plenty of damage. Up A 30-foot wave will almost double itself. A 70-foot wave will double itself almost. The damage is caused by the strike, because the, although the cliffs there are, are near vertical, they're, they're almost right, but they're leaning back slightly, so you've got a slope for it to go up as well, albeit a steep slope. So, But the thing is, it didn't happen on the 15th. That's the whole point about it. It happened on the 17th, and whether the weather records, it was a massive near-hurricane-force storm that particular day. And there was worse, not worse than that day, but there was bad storms later on that month as well. They, they affected a bit further north, but it hit the Flannans as well. So any of that damage could what wasn't caused on the day they disappeared. You could say... The weather was bad. This leads me into the second thing about the timeline. What Muirhead said in his report was that they'd had their lunch. He'd looked at the slate and he'd obviously looked at the logbook. They'd taken the weather recordings. They'd had their lunch. So one o'clock, so they sat down, started eating, a bit of banter, a cup of tea, and then it's two o'clock. So at two o'clock, remember, this is the middle of winter. 
there's not much more than an hour of daylight left. And any of the NLB keepers you speak to will tell you that any outside jobs you do early morning and get them out of the way. Afternoons are for sleep and doing stuff indoors. You didn't get up and go out down to the West Landing with less than an hour of daylight approaching to do work down there because it was getting dark anyway. The light was fading. Right. I, I can't remember off the top of my head when the, the light, but certainly by 3.30 and within an hour and a half, the light would be gone virtually. You wouldn't be able to work properly. So why would you do it? That's the thing about it. People, so, so there was no real need for them. You could say, oh, well, maybe they were checking. They felt they had to check something, but it, it's highly unlikely they would have done that. And the other thing is because it was December, the prevailing winds come from the west. So it would have been the east landing that they would have been using all the time, not the west landing. So right. there was even less reason for them to go over there. And uh, the curse of any lighthouseman life on a, on a rock is keeping the steps clear of the seaweed and slime. And uh, the general view from the lighthouseman I've spoken to is that with three men, it would take them all their time just to keep one landing free of all the muck. And that would have been concentrated on the landing that they used, which was the east landing. So there was no need for them to go to that side of the island. That that would entail, So I'm not saying they didn't do any work on it. They would probably keep it ticking over, but it would not have been maintained as well as the, as the landing that was in use. Right, because you, as you had said previously, there is one hard and fast rule with pretty much every lighthouse keeper, and that is when the weather is really bad, you lock the doors and windows, and you do not go outside. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's the rule that somebody has to be within the lighthouse all the time. Sure. Obviously, in an emergency, that might get overridden. But the point is, why would you go outside in foul weather, high winds, driving rain? You just stay in. You just batten down the hatches. There was always plenty to do inside anyway. But the afternoons were generally a quiet time. You'd have your lunch. Whoever was going to be on on duty that night while the light was on would get his head down, and the other two would probably read a book or just try and relax. So, so, so the main two points here, the takeaway is that from these computer models set up with the with the data, and I, I want to stress this as well, is that the reason they have such great data weather from, you know, 1900 is that uh, that was part of their job to keep accurate and detailed records of the conditions at all times. Yeah. Uh, so you have good data to work with. And then running that through with the meteorologists at the college there and, yeah. and through a computer model, you can get a very accurate idea of exactly what's happening on those days. And so the takeaway here is that one, there was bad weather, bad enough for them to take note of it on the 15th. However, not bad enough to have caused the damage that was seen uh, two days later. So I'm, right. I'm correcting that summation. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, it pokes kind of a big hole into the giant wave theory, or at least let some daylight in there. So it's not airtight. It's not, no, nowhere near it. And uh, I always... Uh... I try and accept other people's views, but uh, I mean, I've had some quite insulting emails sent to me saying it, it's, it's obviously an effing big wave, you twat, right. et cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> so, well, well, you, we, must have been, you must have been there, dude. Yeah, yeah, hey, we, right, exactly. we've covered 50 similar topics. You should see our inbox. <laughs> yeah, so we don't know. No, we're, we're quite familiar <laughs> with people's various uh, pet ideas. And of course, 
it's a very personal human nature kind of thing. You want to, uh, you believe what you want to believe. You want to put your spin on it. But as we said, and, and kind of looping back to the top of the interview, as you had said, it's with every good mystery. And certainly, you know, it's kind of a running theme with our show as well, is that you look to these things and everybody wants to, you know, it's human nature to come, to want to come to a comfortable, digestible conclusion. But when you really look at it, when you start diving into this, you realize like, well, it's like uh, with Dyatlov perhaps and infrasound is that it does not tick all the boxes. It does not solve or answer every question. And that's what we're seeing here. So that's what I like to point out here is that, as you said, we get comments all the time. It's like, obviously it's this. And it's like, wait a second, that answer may only cover 60, 70% of the outstanding questions. Yeah. And of course, everyone has got their other hypotheses. So this might be a good time to actually take a look at all these uh, different hypotheses that you've mentioned, and and then we'll save yours for the last as the finale. Okay. Uh, okay. So if uh, if we take a look at these that have been mentioned throughout the years, uh, I kind of wanted to go back to the idea of Walter Alderbert. He was stationed on Flannan in the 1950s. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Right. He was kind of obsessed with what is called the third man theory. Yeah, well, he was the person who came up with the... Because what people couldn't understand was why MacArthur's coat was left behind on its peg. It's bad weather, so why did he not put his coat on? The thing is, uh, Alderbert, um, I actually have a copy of his original report, but he, he doesn't mention about the weather. He's just assuming. You see, the, the trouble is with a lot of the earlier research into this is nobody's actually really looked at the weather. Right. Uh, they all assume it's just bad weather, big waves, you know, like Gaddis. It's, everybody's praying because the waves are so big. But it was actually, it was just a, a strong gale. That, that's yeah. what it was building up to. But he's saying that a giant wave came and took one of them. The other guy ran up. But well, it surprised me that Alderbert didn't mention how long it would have taken him to have done that. But you see, if you say that theory, then by saying that, you're starting to punch holes in it. One thing I've found in both the Atlov and, and this particular story is you'll get plenty of people coming up with a theory, but nobody wants to tear it to bits. Uh, right. I'm, all, I'm always happy to tear my own theories to bits <laughs> because it's the only way you'll get an answer. You, yeah. You've got to keep an open mind. Once you say, oh, well, you try and dismiss criticism of it, it's oh well you know that that couldn't happen or whatever it's got to have been this and i am afraid to say i think that's what alderbert's doing there he doesn't take into account the fact that okay you're pumped up with adrenaline but like i say duckett wasn't a young man if it was him that was running back it would it would have taken quite a while but then alderbert's asking you to believe that then another big wave comes and takes the other two it's, yeah. uh, to me, it stretches the credulity of it. We agree on that. I think it's uh, you're asking maybe a little too much out of out of that uh, hypothesis. Yeah. Um, I think for the next section here, it might be kind of fun if we just go through and you can comment on or give your thoughts, or if you have no thoughts or comments on it, that's fine too. But just yeah. kind of run, we'll run through all the various uh, kind of the, the history and the prehistory of this place. And I personally was very fascinated when you were talking about the ancient pre-Christian inhabitants, you know, because that starts off into this idea that the entire place and these islands especially are cursed. Well, the curse, there's two aspects to the curse as well. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a place that's steeped in mysticism, if you like. You've got the Kalanish stones there. These are uh, from pre-Christian times. And I've been to them. It's quite interesting. But they're 
I don't know, mini Stonehenge, if you like, but right, uh, right. it's believed to do to be with the worship of the sun. To be clear for our listeners, those are on Lewis, not on the flame. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, no, that's okay. I just want to make it clear. Yeah. The belief is, uh, the legend has it, is that these were used for human sacrifice in those pre-Christian times, and that the dead, once they had been sacrificed, were taken out to the Flannans and offered to the gods out there. So it became a place of burial, and there's stories of bodies being put on pyres out there and used as a kind of a burial place and used for offerings to the gods. So the the whole area is, if you like, steeped in, in that kind of... It's a place of mourning and a, right. a, a place that belongs to the dead and that the building of the, the lighthouse. The island had been used by monks for, you know, going out of the, the, you know, the chapel out there in St. Flan, Flannan, yeah. you know, the monks doing retreats out there. And there'd been people hunting fowl going out there. Sheep herders used to go out there, but they were all transient none of them ever stayed there but it was felt that the lighthouse disturbed the sanctity of the island you know right. they, they, you had permanent inhabitants you had this object poking up into the sky offending the sky gods and right. the, the story and there might be some truth in it when joseph moore walked up to the uh, lighthouse that day when he set foot on the island there's the story of the three birds the three large black birds that were on top of the lighthouse that right isn't that in the poem yeah no but, yeah. but he i think that the poem took that from joseph moore's because that that story mm-hmm. was was doing oh. the rounds okay doing the rounds on lewis they were fairly superstitious folk mm-hmm. uh, and, and the thing with joseph moore he he was very superstitious he used to have a, um, now I can't remember what it was, but he had a lucky charm oh. with him everywhere, and he'd forgotten it this particular time when he went out. It's a known fact that um, he felt his life was cursed from that day that he set foot in that lighthouse. And Muirhead refers to him in you know his report and in uh, further correspondence that he's going to have to remove him because he was so agitated at staying on the island, and they did remove him once the lighthouse was back because he was close to a nervous breakdown. (laughs) Yeah, he had to stay till March, though, right? It was like three or four months, wasn't it? (laughs) Like a little while. Yeah, but remember these guys, one of the replacements there died falling from the lighthouse four years after. You know, they did quite long stints on him, so three months is nothing, really. But uh, uh, Muirhead wanted him there to... Sorry, I may have given the impression he was pulled off immediately. He wasn't, but... Right. No, no. I I remember reading it in your book, and I remember thinking as bad as he clearly felt that three months must have felt like an eternity at that point, I would think. I don't know. In Lighthouse posting terms, that just a long, uh, that's just a long weekend. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, especially on a rock posting, you wouldn't want to stay there too long anyway, but some people are on, on some postings four, five, six years. Yeah. Right. Well, have there actually been bones have been found on Elian Moore, or is that just more of uh, folklore? Bones have been found in Lewis. Uh, uh, I see. There's the story of the little people there who were, yeah. you know, these were in vegan times, who were... Was this the, the Lost Burden? Yeah, Lost Burden, yeah. The, mm-hmm. But they were malevolent. The bones were supposedly to have come from them, but the, you know, people have examined them and found them to be burp foul uh, uh, or you 
F-O-W-L as opposed to F-O-U-L. <laughs> right. yeah. They were kind of foul people, too. I mean, it, it supposedly from the, the tradition, right? But they were. They were malevolent, uh, quite uh, nasty. But that, that's the legend. But um, you have, the, if you like, the image of, the, of this whole area is um, where people die, where people were sacrificed, where people were burnt on pyres. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a very negative unpleasant view of the place and then you got this tribe if you like of the lost burdens who were quite unpleasant to outsiders as well it's got a real anti-feeling to it the whole thing it wasn't a benign place if you like was there a legend that uh they had uh, hanged one of the first missionaries one of the first uh, christian missionaries that had visited they did apparently he was supposed to be a a, a kind gentle person who would help anybody and these lost burdens uh, hanged him on a hill because they <laughs> didn't particularly like him uh, so you could describe them as a tribe who no matter how you tried to get on with them if you like yeah. that they attack you which is what happened to him i mean but it's all legend that's the thing it's right you right. know all right proof of that happening but the thing is the legends have come from stories and it's all been passed down by word of mouth so and generally there's no smoke without fire yeah exactly we say that quite a bit too there's often a kernel of truth within these legends yeah, within it and so you still have this this impression of the place of being a place where outsiders aren't welcome and the thing is with these three lighthouse keepers they slot right into that category three outsiders they've built this thing going up into the sky, offending the sky gods and three guys who are not from these parts. They were from the mainland and they wouldn't have been welcome. I'm not talking about the locals on the island in the 1900s, but the whole thing is, is if you're looking at it from a supernatural point of view, if you like, that these people were not welcome and that right. that's... It disappeared. Was there any connection, I was going to ask you about, talking about uh, clergy, the island's namesake, and I'll, I'll attempt this here because I've been practicing it, uh, St. Flannan MacTorlbaig? Yeah, well, there's truth in that, um, mm-hmm. because that, that chapel that uh, he used to do his retreats on, if you like, is still right. there. I've actually, yeah, yeah. I've actually been in it, and it's incredible that something like that can last from the 7th century. It's just It's just stones on top of each other and yet right. there's a room inside it if you go in you bend down it's it's almost about 200 feet away from the lighthouse itself you can see it mm-hmm. in the pictures so yeah. uh, so it was a place of retreat for irish monks and obviously he's the one that's associated with it but a lot a lot of the irish monks were coming up from well what was what you would now call ulster or northern ireland they were dotted around a number of the islands there. St. Kilda is another one that's further south. So that it wasn't just that particular island that they were coming to, but if you like, they were yeah. spreading themselves out and about. But St. Kilda is another island that has these, you know, the, mm-hmm. the monks going there and carrying out their prayers and retreats for long periods of time. But right. how they could have survived, <laughs> it's a really bleak, yeah. Lonely place. Right. Um, but his retreats there, I think, is, as you had mentioned, were revealed. And so you have this transitional time between uh, pagan beliefs and uh, the first Christian influence. Yeah. His presence there and his legacy 
adds a lot to the mystery of the island and the mystique and the um, uh, the reverence there. If you like, you had the, the pagan thing of people being burnt on pyres and right. uh, funeral pyres, but and then you have, if you like, the Enlightenment coming with St. Flan, the good side of the mystique coming in as opposed to the bad right. side, the bad right. old, old ideas. But there's still that association, though, with the holiness uh, yes. of the place being very special with certain powers, if you like. It was a place where you went to cleanse yourself almost, you right. know, cleanse yourself in fire, cleanse yourself in prayer. And even then you have the lighthouse as maybe even an intrusion on that. Well, it, it, it is an intrusion. An eyesore isn't the right word. I mean, lighthouse. <laughs> right. No, it's actually kind of nice. Uh, and lighthouse can be quite a beautiful thing. But I've, yes. I've seen one picture of the helipad there and the lighthouse. I mean, because the, obviously it's automated now, but engineers go out to maintain it once every few months and just give the buildings a once over. But there's a picture I've seen taken from another helicopter of mm-hmm. the helicopter on the helipad. You've got the lighthouse up on the the top, and then you've got this stone chapel in the middle of it all. It it looks like some Hollywood film set where we do the helicopter shots over there, the the lighthouse (laughs) shot from the 1930s there, and the 7th century scene here. It's it's just so bizarre to see the three things together. It's it's really weird. Uh, How many things have lasted from, you know, the 7th century anywhere? let alone there, and it's just bricks and stones on top of each other. Right, right. I was going to say, so then in 1703, Martin Martin makes a chronicle of, I guess, uh, the anthropology or the, the local customs and, and folklore there of the Hebrides. What were his conclusions? Just basically, kind of similar to what you were saying, there's a lot of bad luck and superstition and, and uh, supernatural beliefs. I mean, I'm not that familiar with the later history of mm-hmm. Lewis up there, but they're very insular communities. Right. Uh, they, they, they haven't changed much in, in, in not just in decades, but in hundreds of years. I mean, uh, I remember somebody telling uh, only recently where on a Sunday everything stopped up in the in the islands and and it's only recently that if you like uh, the 21st century has started going out into places like I'm not okay maybe a bit before that obviously but uh, but certainly up until 1900 you know the only way you could get in there was a horse and cart yeah um, yeah they they were so cut off. And a trip from one side of the island up on Lewis into the main drag of Stornoway was probably a day's journey there and a day's journey back. Wow. You know, it's a, they, they were very cut off. Uh, right. okay, cars were coming in but by, you know, by the turn of the last century. But certainly while the lighthouse men were there, it, the place hadn't changed much you know, in a couple of hundred years. That brings me to my next point. Uh, You had mentioned when you were talking with Soraya, it's the area of the film Wicker Man. Yes. uh, Which I know we have, I'm sure we have some fans out there in our listening audience who know exactly what I'm talking about. A 1973 movie uh, where Christopher Lee is Lord Summer Isle and the whole area is a mystical, uh, you know, again, still holding on to these pagan beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I thought it was pretty good film actually um yeah, it was, yeah. It, it, what, it, i mean it's, it's set up there but uh, the actual filming for that was done down in uh dumfries and galloway mm-hmm. which is much you know it's further south it's um 
it's near the borders, but it, it's along along a bit where it goes out. The coast goes out towards Ireland is where it was actually filmed. But right. it's actually set up up in those islands up there. And uh, there was a, a remake of it with Nicolas Cage. Yes, as well. not quite as good, but no, <laughs> still no. entertaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. It, it's the same idea. You know, this right. idea of sacrifice and renewal. And uh, sure, uh, I mean, I, I thought it was a great film when it came out. But I don't know how. They put that film together, but the the idea yeah. of people being sacrificed on pyres on the Flannan Isles maybe gave them the idea for it. Yeah, it's a similar, quite similar sort of thing. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, and, and not to get you in any, any kind of trouble, but do you yeah. think that there is still some uh, practice of some of these pagan rituals in the area today? Or do you think that that's possibly, you know, may, maybe it's a little inflated for the 70s and the movie and, and the drama of it, and it's it's pretty much died down? Or do you get a sense that there's perhaps some, I guess the term now would be neo-paganism yeah, uh, going on uh, in the area today? It, it certainly wouldn't surprise me to find that things like that were going on up there. Yeah. Mm, Definitely. A couple more things about the curse uh, that I found fascinating is that, of course, uh, I think we may have mentioned this in part one, is that the Archtor or the Arctor, the ship that had yeah. passed by nearly, you know, runs aground or hits a rock, almost sinks uh, less than 48 hours after passing the island. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I was amazed when I found that because uh, I, I wanted to find out what had happened to the arch tour, uh, you know, eventually. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was like delving into the bits and pieces of a story. And I, I, and I found when I was digging around and it had an inquiry arch tour captain, and I was absolutely astonished to find it was on that journey. It was amazing past the Flannan, seen that the light wasn't on, gone round the top of uh, Scotland and come down, and then nearly sank when it hit the rock, all on that journey after passing the lighthouse. And, of course, it disappeared 12 years later. Yeah. Yeah, just vanished. There's still no trace of it, right? No, no trace. Everybody on board disappeared with it. Who was the captain of the arch? Harvey was the Hesperus, wasn't he? Holman. Holman, yes. right. Was he on it when it disappeared or not? No, he wasn't. Okay. No, it, it was another master, but um, actually Holman very cl- came very close to losing his master's ticket after he'd left, uh, I think it was a third officer taking the uh, on the bridge, taking all the, the readings, the soundings, and uh, he got it wrong. But the master takes responsibility, but he held on to his ticket, whereas... A lot of people felt he shouldn't have kept it, but uh, but right. he wasn't on it when it disappeared. But oddly enough, I was looking at the list of people that disappeared. There was quite a few of them from up there, from northern Scotland on, mm. on the ship you know, that had gone down. Well, I say gone down, it disappeared. It's only assumed that it had a cargo of phosphate and just mm. disappeared storm but uh whatever happened anyway it went <laughs> that was that was it and no theories at all really of, of well, what happened to well, it. No, not really in yeah. uh, in the sense that somebody i can't remember which port it came out of um was it norfolk you know it over on the west coast of the usa mm-hmm. and uh sorry east coast yes so it was seen heading out to sea and that was the last anybody ever saw of it and when it didn't uh make landfall on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, search parties were, you know, vessels yeah. went there, but nobody found a trace of it. But uh, there had been a storm, so it's assumed that it, it right. disappeared. 
Yeah. Well, before we get to your own personal theories, which we've been teasing throughout, I thought it'd be fun if we go through, I guess, the more outlandish and uh, possibly way out there theories, and then you can give us a comment on, on each one, uh, if you have one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, Yeah, so the first one, of course, and what's funny is because of the, uh, we covered the Mary Celeste, the giant squid theory, or the Kraken, or even an out-of-bounds uh, Nessie, <laughs> the Stromsay Beast. What is the that name there? I'm not sure if I, I'd heard that well, before. Uh, that's um, a large uh, sea creature that was found up uh, in Orkney. And um, people say it was a basking shark. But right. uh, it, was, it was a massive creature that was rotting away. And it was they called it the Stromsay Beast. But uh, mm. it was believed to be a... Uh, yeah, so the, the, what... what um, they were trying to do, you know, if the Discovery Channel was to try and focus on that if we could, but it implies right. that there's several large sea creatures, but it's, and there's been supposedly one or two sightings. There was a sighting uh, of a large sea creature from a German vessel, but nobody's ever caught one or, you know, got given us a good, good photograph, uh, an unphotoshopped photograph of one. <laughs> That's right. the thing. The thing is, I, yeah. I, I don't want to knock those theories. You know, to sure. me, you know, I, I, I keep an open mind. If, if somebody says, well, there's definitely a big creature there and a big creature eventually turns up, you know, you think, well, okay. But <laughs> until the day you get proof, right. that you've always got to have is, is the proof of it. Because I think tied with that, from the air, now there's another theory of a giant seabird. The, there's the seabird, there's... Uh, the sky gods turned them into birds. Uh, right. The, the sky gods may have come down and taken them, all possible. But right. again, no, very little proof, unfortunately. Uh, mm. So somebody did contact me with a very complicated theory of, how can I put it, a kind of a different dimension mm-hmm. that the men disappeared into. But I have to be honest, I, I couldn't get my head around it. Yeah. I mean, if, if, but there's people interested in it. You know, I'd like sure. to know more about how they believe it works. That leads to another question I was going to ask, which is, uh, you know, as far as things like the seabird, you know, all the stories that we've heard in, in the, the years that we've been on now and the stories that people have sent us and swear by them, there are some very strange anomalous creatures. That's one thing, but, and who knows where they come from, but uh, then you see things like the Formula One race here for the U.S. Grand Prix a massive bird shadow flies over, and uh, nobody knows where that came oh, yeah, that from. Was last that year, right? Yeah. Who, who, was, who had faked that for some kind of weird publicity? But um, you, we do get reports of, uh, especially here in the in the American Southwest, of, of giant bird-like creatures being seen and, and other and elsewhere. But but as far as like the natural things, we have come across stories of natural weather anomalies, which cause disruptions. Uh, we did yeah. a story about electronic fog, which is a very peculiar weather pattern that happens in uh, the Florida Keys, which this one pilot claims propelled him forward in time. Oh, Keith, you should, if you, you should go back through our archives. That one's right up your alley, I think. That might yeah. be, yeah, it might be Find a great Electronic fog, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly have a look. And here's the thing, it's not that woo-woo, because it's a very specific natural phenomenon that 
somehow, you know, we don't know, but the physics of it cause a This guy in his private war. plane traveled, I think, 30 or 40 miles in a matter of 45 like minutes. Yeah, he made a he made like a, an hour and a half flight in about 45 minutes. Yeah, um, it's, which it's is fascinating. strangely documented. Yeah. What I was going to ask you, though, as crazy as that sounds, uh, UFOs and orbs and St. Elmo's fire and uh, ball lightning, is there any reports or stories that you've heard of where this has been reported in the general area? What I have been contacted about, as I was just saying, was somebody was saying that it was like an orb, but mm. another dimension, but kind of plasma, I think right. is what they mentioned. But um, the weather up there is strange, because I'll, I'll tell you, when we were there filming that, we were only out there for that. We got out there very early, and we left before it got dark. It was in April. We'd done a lot of filming up at the actual lighthouse itself, but we were further down on the rest of the island. And it was a brilliant, clear day, a lot of sun. And literally, I looked up and there was a bank of fog barely 100 yards away from me. And it almost as if somebody had clicked their fingers and then the fog came probably as wow. faster than you could walk or, or run almost, and it enveloped you completely. So, that, you know, it is strange weather up there because hmm. fog always thought moved quite slowly, but there was no wind. But the fog was there suddenly, and that was it. And it just enveloped the whole island. And then 20 minutes later, it's just, it was gone, and it was back to brilliant sunshine. So wow. the, maybe these things are connected with the weather. Yeah. I have to say I don't know enough about it to be able to, to comment. Not a problem. Yeah. I thought I just always got to throw yeah. that in there. But the other more grounded theories, um, any kind of um, – Credence to pirates or foreign spies. Again, that's possible, but um, mm -hmm. I, what I would put it down to, you know, there was a talk of them, somebody had seen them in a boat and all the rest right. of it. But you have to remember that what was happening that day was there was a strong gale. Yeah. So anybody in a boat would not have been able to get on or off the island. Right. Uh, right. 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 To, uh, forget that. You know, the weather. The waves certainly would have been approached by six o'clock that afternoon. The, the waves were approaching 30 feet. So yeah. you're not going to be able to. Yeah. It was hard enough me trying to get onto it and almost in a flat, calm sea, let alone a 30 foot wave. So, yeah, that's, you know, when you look at the Google Earth images down below, the still shot of it, there's so much white water. Yeah, around yeah. most of the islands and circling yeah. in that. And if you got down there, like you, it's hard to imagine. But yeah, you're talking, you know, three or four foot waves, yeah, smashing into jagged rock. So again, those were some of the listed theories. But other humans of a cause, you know, nefarious as it might be, does not make a lot of sense to me. Just to abduct these guys for little well, game well, for what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. the, the, the Northern Lighthouse Board would probably say, "Well, you can keep them, and we'll get." Them <laughs> so, you know, there's plenty of people applying for work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, the weather rules that out completely because yeah. a boat would need to be nearby. You'd need to manhandle the three of them into a rowing boat to get back out because a large boat wouldn't be able to get in close anyway. It would be just smashed. The thing is, even a rowing boat would have been just smashed on the rocks. It just wouldn't oh, have worked. Certainly, yeah. yeah. And here's my personal favorite. I think we'll end on the uh, fringe theories here. I love the uh, folklore and, and the sound of this, but they were possibly taken away by... Ghosts of the Ship, the Phantom of the Seven Hunters. Do you know anything about that? Well, I, I know the islands were known as the Seven Hunters, but mm -hmm. um, it's not a story I've come across anyway. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but it, it falls into the category of 
plasma orbs, the sky gods, <laughs> taking them because they're right, right. You know, it, it all comes into that category for me. Uh, the, yeah. the supernatural. And yeah. like I say, you know, if there's some you probably need somebody more qualified on that area to speak on it than me, you know, because it's not <laughs> something I've gone into very deeply. I'll sure. be honest. It's just part of the, the folklore of it. Of course, uh, you know, as with all these missing ships or abandoned ship yeah. stories, the idea of a ghost ship is just so cemented in uh, in people's psyches. Regionally, it's going to have its own, but I just love the sound of the name. Uh, sounds yeah. very, of course, romantic. Yeah, it does, yeah. Uh, sounds good. It's like the old Flying Dutchman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, I think it's time you kind of revealed your thoughts from all the research you've done and your conclusions. And, and, and again, we talked a little bit before we started recording here. I thought what I thought was fascinating from hearing your interview uh, with Soraya and, and what Scott has found reading the book, you're very you know, objective and give weight to all the theories and being very open-minded about it. But it sounded like perhaps you were maybe heading towards one particular scenario over the others. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, well, I discuss this very regularly with a good friend who Mm -hmm. had helped me um, on it. We came up with another theory as well. But what I felt had happened, uh, I think the key to the whole thing was... uh, Donald MacArthur. Mm-hmm. I felt that um, he was a highly volatile character. And okay, he built churches and he was, you know, a figure of the community. But um, I mean, I'm from Ireland originally. I know plenty of people who are very holy, but who drink a lot <laughs> and uh, get quite violent with it sure. and uh, turn very unpleasant as well. But uh, right. that's another story, as they say. But um, right. you know, so you got this bloke who uh, who's really wound up, easily wound up. He hasn't yeah. had a drink for a long time. He's stuck out there. And the other thing, interesting thing, is uh, the, the lighthouse people I've spoken to is that you worked with other lighthousemen, but you didn't make friends with them. You have three men cooped up with each other day in, day out, week in, week out. Nothing's private. So you can imagine how I went to uh, a naval training school and it was all males and mm-hmm. it was bad enough there on a land establishment where people got on your nerves or whatever. So you imagine what it must be like in a, the nickname for the Flannans, by the way, was the dog kennel amongst the uh, lighthousemen oh, because wow. it was so small. So you're cooped up there with two two people that you don't particularly like or get on with. You'd like a drink because you like getting smashed out of your head and you haven't been able to for, as you mentioned earlier, for a long time. You're worried about your family. And it wouldn't take too much for something to snap. My view was that possibly MacArthur that afternoon was left behind because um, Duckett being the principal, his word would be law. And he said, we're going to go down. Somebody had to stay in the lighthouse anyway. Duckett would have said, we need to go down to check the box of ropes on the West Landing and said to MacArthur, get your coat and we'll go down. And he'll say, I'm not going, or you go and effing well do it yourself. (laughs) Um, So just snapping, because A, it wasn't the right time of day, and B, he probably got to a point where he just had enough. He just wanted to get off. And don't forget also that the ship had been delayed, the Hesperus had been delayed getting out there as well. So he was nearly at the end of his tether. So he probably said, well, I'm not doing it. You do it. Duckett would have turned to Marshall and said, all right, well, you, you come with me then. I took the view that when somebody snapped like that, 
they generally don't leave it like that because it's the rage is unfulfilled. And it's quite likely that he went out after them wanting to sort it out good and proper. Coming down from that lighthouse, you come to the edge of the cliff mm-hmm. and it literally, I was actually afraid to go anywhere near it because uh, a misstep, I would have gone right over 110 feet straight down. My original theory was that he caught up with them and that uh, it wouldn't have taken too much argy-bargy, bit of pushing or shoving, shouting, right. and you would have gone over the edge. I actually moved back from it because you have to go to the edge to get to the top of the steps. Ah, to going down, you see. And it's very precarious. And at that point there, there's no railings or anything to hold on to the steps lead you down and then the railing starts but that's built into the cliff but before you get there it's a very precarious place to be so i had the view that possibly a scuffle started with macarthur blowing his top with ducat thomas marshall being a big guy trying to intervene and calm the situation lost their balance and the three of them just went straight over the edge there's um Another theory that I've been developing with Alistair, his Mm. view is that it was the wind that was responsible, but that it was connected to Muirhead's visit. And the reason for Muirhead trying to play down his visit there with his wife was that he arrived on the 7th, and being a visitor virtual royalty from head office, Muirhead had asked Duckett and the men to be available for him to, you know, see the station, take a few photographs. We've got that photograph of them all together. And um, then they would uh, have a meal and then he'd leave. When the ship used to come out from uh, Brea's Cleet on uh, Lewis, he used to bring provisions for them. So they would have all been left on the landing. So... The following day, the 8th, but because of Muirhead's visit, the men wouldn't have wanted to have left the superintendent and his wife on their own while they were attending to the, the provisions because it would have required, to bring all the stuff up, required somebody to operate the steam winch at the top and the other two right. to be found bringing it, the stores up. And uh, Alistair's view was that where that platform is, the three of them, the other two would have gone down in all their gear. MacArthur, he would have left his jacket on its peg because he wouldn't have needed to have taken it because he would have walked outside just to operate the winch. So he would have been in the yard. They brought the rest of the provisions up and started loading them, but there was high wind, and there was high winds that day, and the three of them had gone over the top, right over the cliff, which is actually at that point just over 200 feet up. And the edge of the cliff is literally just about six or seven feet away from the wall where they were working. That's his view. But the problem with that, and as I say, you have to destroy your theory if you can to make it stand or make it work, is that the contradiction is in the records. Because if they disappeared on the 8th, well, the records to the 15th, supposedly, you know, the slate showed the weather and the log right. up to the 15th. But the only person who's really confirmed that was Muirhead. Again, you're coming into cover-up theory. Yeah, uh, right. You know, uh, just because the arch tore past that night and said the light wasn't on, that was the 15th, didn't mean to say that the light wasn't on for the week day before it, if they disappeared on the 8th. And that, that was why Muirhead felt so bad about what had happened, was that they were working and disappeared the day after he'd been there. Ah, 
But that's contradicted, as I say, by Moore's letter, which says he saw the date, the 14th, written on the slate with the weather. But going against that, why Uh would he have asked to write a letter anyway? And, of course, there's no proof at all other than what Moore said in his letter, because the documents have all disappeared. Hmm. Let me, since you've been there, I do have a question. How do you communicate if you're operating the steam winch down to the landing, or how far down does it go? Does it go all the way down? Uh, the- yeah, well, it doesn't go. It, it, on uh, both landings, there's cranes. It goes about halfway down. And okay, you okay. use the crane to fill it up. Uh, I believe that the men take it up themselves, but you need to have the winch work, and you need somebody manning it to keep it running up at the top. Well, there was no actual communication system there. That basically, he would just need to make sure the machine ran all right at the top, but that they would operate at the actual trolley themselves. Keith, I just can't thank you enough for coming on our show. This has been an absolute blast to have. That was quite a pleasure. Yeah, just yeah. yeah. Well, can <laughs> just I, uh, there's, there's something I haven't finished. Uh, I didn't finish the bad luck thing. Um, oh, yes. When people say uh, bad, uh, I mean, I've heard it said that bad luck comes from within you, or is bad luck associated to a place? But you've got the two incidents with the arch tour, but uh, you've got one of the replacements fell from the the tower four years after right. he replaced one of the men. And William Ross, who was uh, the guy, he should have been there that day. MacArthur had replaced him as the occasional. He was ill. He dropped dead a year later. He was transferred to Elan Glass Lighthouse in the Sound of Mull. And uh, he, he literally dropped dead in the actual light room a year later. So, you know, the, there was a lot of unpleasant incidents associated with it. And then you've got Joseph Moore, who is on record as having said that his life was cursed from that day forward with the deaths in his fa- early deaths in his family. Oh, my gosh. His wife yeah. died. So there's a lot of bad luck with it. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't want to get that bit in. Just to say, okay, bad luck, coincidence, who knows? Well, yeah, and is there anything else you want to add that you didn't get a chance to talk about? To be honest, uh, I think the trouble is, you you know, you do the, you think I'll say that and then I'll do it this way and then, you know, you you end up talking a load of rubbish and... uh, (laughs) It's all been been fascinating, though. No, it really has. And uh, Keith, we just want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure having you and we look forward to having you on again in the future if you want to come back. I'd love to. And it's been great being on the show. Thank you very much, both of you. All right. Thanks a lot, Keith. Yeah, I'm off to bed. Night, night. <laughs> night, night. Take care, <laughs> All sir. Right, good night. Thank you. All right. All right. I'm Zork and this is Astonishing Legend. Let's get back to the show. Well, I tell you what, that was a lot of fun. I cannot wait to have Keith back on the show. Yeah, uh, for Dyatlov. Yeah, he's part of an ongoing investigation with Dyatlov. He's written two books on it, and he's been there, and he's also been petitioning to reopen the investigation. He just raised funds on a GoFundMe page, which we made a donation to, that actually put him over the top for that. So uh, he's got... Yeah, so they're going to look back into it. Also, there are people, since that time, and of course, uh, since we did our episode on it, there have been people who have gone back in, as he said, with metal detectors and different equipment trying to figure out what happened. And so a little bit of new information has come to light. Which you know we're going to have to share with you guys, because Dyatlov's one of our favorites. It's one of Tess's favorites, and it was also Tess's first show. So uh, it's 
pretty exciting. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things Keith said before we wrap up tonight's show. What we're going to do is just uh, reiterate some of the finer points that he made that stood out to us. We're going to talk briefly about a couple of other quick lighthouse stories that add some color to the big picture here. And uh, then we're going to give you our conclusions and we're going to be wrapping this series up. The first thing I want to talk about is when Keith talks about the visitor's book, or as the lighthouse keepers called it, the stranger's book, and how that was the only thing left behind. All this other paperwork, you know, Muirhead took it. You said in the interview, that's not that unusual, and Keith agreed with you, but by the same token, it is a little strange that all that stuff is lost. Now, I think I said to you off the air a few minutes ago, Forrest, when we first started out, I used to think whenever there was a story like this and all the research was missing or all the papers were missing, I used to be like, oh, it's a cover-up, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> but now we've covered so many of these stories and these older stories, it seems like more often than not, it's the case. Stuff has disappeared because, especially when you look at what he was saying about the attitude of the NLB, the the Northern Lighthouse Board, right? they don't really like talking about it. And they'll point you to where there's papers to research on it, but... As far as they're concerned, the case is closed. Well, it does no good, you know, to them. Yeah, and it didn't have a lot of, once they came to a resolution with regard to who was going to get paid, which Keith talked a little bit about that, you know, who was entitled to some kind of pension or payout and that sort of thing. For them, the case was closed. And the papers at that point probably weren't important anymore. It's certainly not important enough because preserving papers of that nature for 120 years is no small task in the best of circumstances. And that certainly isn't the only lighthouse. So... It's all a question of how well the material is regarded. But, you know, on the other hand, we always talk about the Somerton Man when there was a shed full of materials from the case. And when the investigator died, his wife set the shed on fire, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or there was a divorce. That'll do it, too. Yeah, something. Uh, But but it's happened before. The stuff gets gone. Well, that's more of an older generational thing, I think, and that is in the paper era to... You don't have a lot of copies of stuff. This is pre-Xerox machine. This is pre-Compier. Generally, a lot of things were originals. And it's not that big of a deal, I think, for an investigator to have at least access to it. Now, it can get sloppy. I'm trying to remember what story we covered that I read a little side note in. Maybe it'll remind you, uh, it'll jog your memory, that uh, there was somebody who was kind of an independent investigator, an older guy, and he was going around to different uh, archives in his car, I think it was a UFO case, but he basically had all of the documents in his car with him, just in boxes, piled up in the back seat, like one of those hoarder cars you see. And yeah. he just drove around to different archives, and that was it. And so you're talking about years and years of research just in this guy's car. And if the car gets stolen, it catches on fire, that's it. And so like with the detective in the Summerton Man case, Yeah, he was the lead detective on it for a long time, had all these files and different things he'd come across pre-digitization, and so they were in his shed. And then once he gets divorced or he passes away, well, his wife doesn't care about that stuff. She wants to clear it out. So it just gets burned, and it's not, Well, and that's, yeah, and that's the thing. And and recently we came across it, too. I always think about, well, also related to the Summerton Man, there was the guy who was the expert on laundry tags who apparently had the best collection in the world. No one knows where that is. And then recently when we did Resurrection Mary, there was the tour guide in Chicago who has just massive archives of tapes and interviews with people uh, related to paranormal material that, as far as I know, is is in some family member's closet or something. And it's sad when that stuff gets lost. No, it it happens all the time because people don't... uh, 
you know, where do you put it? Well, the it? family never cares what dad did or what Well, a lot of times Tom they don't know. know. Yeah, it's a collection. Yeah. Right. They don't know what he was into. And, you're and they're not going to pay thousands of dollars to transfer a bunch of old three-quarter inch videotapes no, or whatever. No, not, not happening. I mean, you know, you hear this story all the time where somebody finds in a closet something miraculous. It's an old film from the 40s. It's a piece of evidence. Uh, you know, people have squirreled away all kinds of things all their lives. And now you see less of that happening because things are backed up to the cloud, things are digitized, there's online access, and so it's Right, which means all all we need is a solar flare to wipe out the entire of humanity's history at that point. Well, that's what we were talking about in uh, Gebekli Tepe, is that... uh, Carve it in a rock, if you want it to stick around. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's ways to do that, but yeah, it's something uh, like a mass solar flare, a coronal mass ejection could fry everything, and I'm sure that there are facilities, but for the rest of us, humans, civilians, that's not happening. Everything's going to be destroyed. So in this case, though, him taking home the logbooks, because as it was mentioned in in the interview, he's the only guy investigating this thing. It's not like there's a team of police investigators. That's it. So either this guy figures it out or he doesn't. The NLB just wants an answer, and they want it to come from him, and it's like, figure something out so we can just close the books on this and move forward. Because it's like a major thing to them. As we'll see in these other stories we're going to talk about, this kind of disappearance is not all that uncommon. I mean, it's not every day, but it has happened quite a bit before, especially with lighthouses. Well, yeah, and before we get into that, I guess the last point I want to make about the visitor's book or the stranger's book is it's really kind of the only way that we know Because I don't think Muir had included it in his investigation. I might have misunderstood. But I think that Keith had said, it's the only way that we know that he went there with his wife on the 7th. I mean, Muirhead did say, I was the last one to see them, I guess. So maybe that's not accurate to say. But the fact that he went there on what the meteorologist that Keith McCloskey worked with had said was, it was the wettest month on record at the time for that island and since the lighthouse had been there. And I think even prior to that. So... The fact that he took his wife to that treacherous location on the 7th, just, uh, I think, a week and a day before the disappearance, is pretty fascinating. That is one thing that's just kind of like, he was there right before they disappeared. But it doesn't necessarily point to any kind of collusion or anything strange. Well, it's, it's not just, like he sabotaged them, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. maybe it would look bad. Maybe it wasn't totally against the rules, but it might look bad if uh, he was there with his wife when it's kind of frowned upon. So he wasn't real forthcoming with that. But it was obviously allowed uh, for her to be there. She'd been there before. One last thing I want to talk about before we get on to some of these other brief lighthouse stories is the arch tour, which nobody seems to know what happened to it. And and we talked about that in the interview. Keith had said there's there's not really any idea. However, we did find one thing that's fascinating. And and when I say we, I mean not me. I mean, one of our newest members of the Astonishing Research Corps, Keish Booker, is an intelligence analyst. And he managed to find this really cool newspaper, The Daily Colonist. And this is from 1913. And I wanted to read this article specifically as it relates to the disappearance of the Arch Tour. The title of this article is Danger of Deck Loads in Winter. And then the subheading is, In Spite of British Shipping Regulations, Owners Still Continue to Take Chances with Heavy Deck Loads. I want to read a couple of excerpts from the article. 
The carriage of deckloads in winter is a subject which has been exercising the minds of underwriters a good deal lately. Under British law, penalties can be imposed on the owners of any vessel which put into British ports carrying deckloads of timber between October 1st and April 16th, except under certain stipulated conditions. Yet British owners seem to feel no compunction in allowing their vessels trading with foreign ports where there is no prohibition to carry such cargoes. If underwriters are convinced that dangers attached to such a practice would be perfectly possible for them to penalize owners who permit deckloads in winter. But obviously, in order that British owners may not suffer in competition with foreign owners, international agreement would be by far the most satisfactory method of stopping the practice. Now listen to this. Steamer Arch Tour Finding. The extent, if any, to which the deck loads were held responsible for the disasters varied in each case. But an effective illustration of the evils of the system were shown in the finding of the court appointed to inquire into the loss of the British steamer Arch Tour. The Arch Tour of 3,414 tons left Norfolk, Virginia for Rotterdam on January 2nd and has not been heard of since she passed Cape Henry on the following day. The deck load consisted of 192 poplar and 71 ash logs of a total weight of 249 tons, stowed as closely as possible and secured with wedges and steel wire lashings fastened to the ship's stanchions. The height of the deck cargo was about five feet or less, the logs being stowed in two tiers across the hatches. And here's the inspector's opinion as it relates to the arch tour. In the course of his remarks, the inspector pointed out that the particulars with regard to the deck cargo were very meager, no dimensions nor shapes of its component parts being given. He stated that in his opinion, quote, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, adequately to secure such a mass of wood against the effects of extremely bad weather, with violent motion of the ship and great seas flooding the decks, wedges might be apt to work loose, and he could hardly regard bulwark stanchions as ideal securing places for lashings for heavy goods, as such stanchions were primarily intended to resist pressure from outboard, an inward and upward strain being another matter. Taking into consideration the contemplated voyage, the season of the year, and the weather likely to be encountered, the deck load was excessive, and the inspector thought that, having regard to what had been done in the unification of maritime law, it might now be found possible by international agreement to prohibit the carriage of deck cargoes of wood during the winter months. So, we still don't know what happened to the arch door, but these guys, way back in 1913, seem to have a pretty good idea. So, I, I thought that was interesting. The Research Corps digs up so much ancillary information with each show we do. There's so many things that we don't get mm. to share. I just thought that since we came across that, and it's a little bit of insight into why the arch door might have disappeared... I thought it was pretty fascinating because it's just standard, like whoever was operating at that time, hey, we can take this wood, we can make some money, just strap it down and we'll hope for the best. And then you get into rolling seas and uh, next thing you know, you're broken half or capsized. Right. So in that case, what's most logical is that it was overweighted, probably capsized. And top heavy. Yeah, top yeah. heavy. And it just, it rolled over, capsized, that's the end of it. Yeah, either that or it broke it. It could have yeah. broke it. It's like they think about the Edmund Fitzgerald. I think they thought that she might've gotten... It's not high-centered, but yeah, I know it's the mean. opposite of high-centered, where the bow's in a wave and the and the stern's in a wave, and there's a trough under the middle, and it breaks in half. It's the wet paper towel test with the quarters and the blue liquid. You hold yeah, up either exactly. end, and it, <laughs> and it breaks through the middle. But that's, yeah, I've heard that before. And uh, you don't know. It's like there's such stresses on human-engineered objects in a massive place like the ocean. So when you have, uh, you know, it's extreme physics, when you increase one of those uh, factors of that equation, strange things happen, and uh, they're never heard of again. 
So there are some other pretty crazy lighthouse stories. I think, Forrest, what we, should, we, we should start with Eddystone, right? Well, that is one case where sort of in the geographical region, we're talking about uh, Eddystone, which is it's kind of an extended reef that's south of Ramehead, England, about 14 kilometers or a little over nine miles. And Ramehead itself is in Cornwall, but the rocks themselves are in Devon. So we're, we're south of this location here, but just in general, very bad weather. It's known for very bad weather. And Eddystone itself, that extended reef, is submerged at high spring tides. So it's very treacherous. And sailors of the day, ship's captains, were so afraid of it, they would hug the coast of northern France when entering the English Channel to avoid that. And that itself would cause wrecks. So it's like something had to be done eventually. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of wreckage going on here because they're afraid of it. And also because, uh, you know, they're running into it, but it was, it was known. But the fact that it's in such a precarious area to begin with that sees this high water all the time during the high tides, it was a long time before anybody attempted to place any kind of lighthouse or warning there. So on Eddystone, there's been four different lighthouses The first one was destroyed by bad weather. The second one burnt down. The third one was known as Smeaton's Tower, and that was very monumental for construction of lighthouses uh, elsewhere after that. Yeah, I think Smeaton's Tower was, I think, the primary inspiration for the Bell Rock, which was designed by the Stevenson family, Uh as was the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. The Stevenson family are the most famous lighthouse builders in the region, some would say in the world, and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson is related to that family. That's so right. One exactly. of the only, he was the creative boy in the family. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest were uh, were engineers and architects. But yeah, so these are very famous, at least the one at Eddystone, the first one was the first instance of an offshore, uh, surrounded by ocean only, lighthouse. Right, which is what Bell Rock is too, but it came along later. Yeah, exactly. So the first uh, lighthouse here at Eddystone was completed in 1699 and is the first ocean open lighthouse, although the Cardoan or Cardoan lighthouse was the first offshore lighthouse. So that's a difference there. But if you look at it, it looks precarious if you, especially if you worked there, if you were the lighthouse keeper, because you were surrounded by nothing but water, and treacherous water at that, stormy. So the very first lighthouse there was designed and built by Henry Wynne Stanley, and that started uh, construction in 1696, was completed in 1698. And the reason we're telling this story is that it paints a picture of just how dangerous these things can be, to be there, to work on them, to construct them. Wynne Stanley, when he was there, he got taken prisoner by a French privateer, (laughs) Uh, around this time, because they were at war with England and France, and uh, it took him hostage, and the privateer destroyed the work that was already being done on the foundations. And that's when uh, Louis XIV stepped in and ordered his release, saying, France is at war with England, not with humanity, which is a statement that shows you how much it was needed, that even because we're at war, this is necessary for all sailors and just the preservation of human life and goods, so it should remain there. So it was very well needed. But the first building was a dodecagonal, 12-sided, stone-clad exterior with a timber frame constructed around it and an octagonal top. And it looks kind of fun. It's, I guess it would be kind of like a Terry Gilliam kind of design on it. 
but it was the first structure there, and it served its purpose until the great storm of 1703, where every trace of it was nearly wiped away. And that was November 27th. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. So we have this great storm that was noted, the great storm of 1703, when Stanley himself was on the lighthouse, and he was completing work and additions and repairs to the structure, along with five other guys, and they all disappeared. They were all swept away. So that's six people who vanished. And then you got to wonder, it's like, well, here's another case of lighthouse keepers who have gone missing. So what's the difference? Because this case here, yeah, it's, it's a mystery. You don't really know where they ended up, but it's not really that much of a mystery because it's naturally assumed that the weather just did it, that the weather took most all of the lighthouse, uh, sweeping it off the rock there. It's not that big of a leap. But here where you have Elon Moore and yeah, there's a lot of damage, but the three guys are missing you know what I'm saying? So that's more of a mystery because it's not that clear. So I found it interesting as an example because here you have something where guys are missing, even twice the number of guys, but it's more obvious what the cause was. And so if you were to take that away, so of course, imagine this, the lighthouse is got some damage, but it's pretty much intact, yet six guys are missing. Then it's more of a mystery. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah, no right. other evidence. They Now it seems like they vanished. Now what happened to them? So that's kind of what happens here in Elon Moore, is that, uh, yeah, there's damage, there's some speculation, and that seems likely, but all the puzzle pieces aren't fitting. Well, and there's also, in this situation, there's no safe harbor. The lighthouse is the only structure. There's no island. It's just a, a tower. And right. so you're all in the tower, or you're not there. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> So that's what I'm saying. When you start to add little elements, and that's why like the tipped over chair or the telltale kettle on the stove boiling and the eggs on the plate were still hot. The more elements you add like that, that someone was just there, then it creates more of a mystery because it's more of a disappearance rather than like, well, who knows? That was a year ago. No one checked in on them and they're just gone. They probably get swept away. So anyway, Eddie Stone, the lighthouse there, should let you know how dangerous lighthouse keeping can be as an occupation. Yeah, and how much of a bummer is that? You're out putting finishing touches on it, and then (laughs) not only is it completely destroyed, but you're killed and everybody with you is killed and no one's ever found. Yeah, That is a bad day right there. It's kind of a Sisyphean task where, again, it was uh, burnt down by the French privateer. You're rebuilding it, and then uh, you're just swept away. So there's four completed lighthouses. The fourth one remains standing, but it's and it's got a fun picture of it. I'm not sure if it's on our website, but there's a guy fishing on the foundation there. And that's Oh it. yes. It, I've seen that. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. But if something happens, I think the last time there was a fire there, the guys uh climbed down to the base and luckily they were rescued, but there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now, Keith had mentioned a murder happening and oh, we talked about Little Ross Island. That's uh also in Scotland, where one lighthouse keeper had murdered the other. I believe we talked yeah, about Yeah, and one. that whole island, by the way, in July of 2017 was for sale for 325,000 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, there was a horrible murder in the house there, which I guess you could buy the island, but the NLB was going to keep 
the lighthouse itself, which of course is automated now. Yes. But yeah, you don't get uh, and to I imagine it's that. sold. I think somebody must have bought it. Well, you, I think you could live in the cottage. You of course yes. can't own and operate the, because it, it still needs to be operated. The cottage where the body was found, which well, we're going to post a link to that story. You got to check that out. Just look up uh, Little Ross Island. I think we mentioned it in part one, but uh, yeah. Well, look. It's it, beautiful. Yeah, it, looks it is. Very it, is it is very beautiful, but you're, <laughs> you're also seeing a photo on a nice day. So keep that in mind. Yes. Keep that's that in true. mind. Valid but point. Keith had mentioned another murder happening at an Australian lighthouse. I think we may have forgotten to ask him which one, or he may not have remembered at the time. But I did a quick search and found this Australian uh, tale of a possibly cursed lighthouse, the Bustard Head Lighthouse. Oh, yeah. And I'm not sure if this is exactly the one that Keith was talking about, but it had enough interesting and weird kind of things happen at it that were tragic that uh, it's worth mentioning here. Again, being dangerous and also possibly being cursed, having a bad vibe about it. So in any case, the Bustard Head Lighthouse is located on Queensland's central coast, And there was a good article on it from News.com Australia by Sam Clench. And he's working with an author who wrote a book on it, Stuart Buchanan, in his book, Lighthouse of Tragedy, published in 1999. So they work with him to pick out the most weird, strange stuff. And uh, there's a couple of doozies in here. So get a load of this. Soon after the lighthouse was built, the first person to die there was a workman who was hit on the head accidentally during the construction, and he died the next day. So, look, it's a construction site. People have accidents. You know, that's not that uncommon. And, of course, uh, Elon Moore has had its accidents as well. But then in 1887, Kate Gibson, the keeper's wife at that time, was missing for two days while her four daughters went searching for her in the brush covering the island. So there's a little different setup. There's a lot of thick brush there, I believe, and trees. It's not that bare. It's not uh, It's not like Elon Moore. So she just wandered away from the little lighthouse keeper's cottage, and after a while, the four daughters wondered where she was, went out searching for her. But then one of the daughters, 19-year-old Annie, found her mother dead with her throat slashed which has just got to be awful. There's nobody there. You're, uh, I think you're 15 kilometers from the next town over. Mm -hmm. And when her husband, Nils, returned home from a trip and he learned of his wife's disappearance, he noticed that his shaving razor was missing. And it was found a few days later next to the body. And at that point, they kind of realized that Kate's death was a suicide. So that's pretty tragic. Uh, We don't know what's going on there, but again, it doesn't seem like foul play other than suicide because there's no one else there on that island. It's not like uh, somebody snuck into the house and grabbed the razor, which was found next to her body. Well, almost two years after Kate's death, Nils Gibson, the lighthouse keeper, his daughter Mary, the assistant lighthouse keeper, John Wilkinson, and his wife Elizabeth, along with a repairman named Alfred Power, were sailing away from Bustard when their sailboat capsized. Mary, Elizabeth, and Alfred all drowned. Nils, uh, the lighthouse keeper, made it back to shore, but he never found his daughter Mary's body. Ugh. And Nils died of cirrhosis of the liver six years after Mary's death. So obviously all that tragedy weighed on him. It sounds like he may have developed a drinking problem, understandably. So, But that's another thing where somebody is taken by the ocean, never to be seen again. Yeah. And that is a recurring theme of the big, dark ocean is that it keeps its secrets. Well, we're not done there, because in 1912, an 18-year-old named George Daniels was accused of murder and kidnapping. 
Edith Anderson, the lighthouse keeper's daughter, and Arthur Cosgell were riding towards Bustard Head when they were attacked. Arthur named George as the man who shot him before he died and the one who kidnapped Edith. So there were letters from George found later saying goodbye, and it seemed to confirm this story from Arthur. And apparently all three were involved in a love triangle. It was Queensland's most expensive police search at the time, but both George and Edith were never found. So that's another uh, instance of tragedy and mystery. And a few weeks after Edith was abducted, another one of lighthouse keeper Fred Anderson's daughters died after suffering an epileptic seizure. So that's two deaths. Well, one disappearance and one death, again, happening to the lighthouse keeper, which is a lot to deal with. And aside from that, there's a couple of infants who had died there, uh, one from an accidental scalding from hot water, another from what was called at the time constitutional weakness. So they just didn't know. At least the first one, the little girl who was about a year old, uh, she was born at the lighthouse. But it started off that way, this all this tragedy, because in the very early days of the lighthouse's operation, since it was first built in 1868, at least three ships have crashed nearby and several boats have capsized, killing the workers that were en route to the lighthouse. So you got to wonder, with that much tragedy, is this place also something of a curse? You know, I don't know the folklore behind it, but it's starting to have some similarities to Eileen Moore, where it's just there's just a bad vibe there. And that's where we're talking about Little Ross Island, is that people, they're interested in it. It's beautiful, but can you overcome the bad vibe of somebody being murdered there? Yeah. That one's got to take the cake for a long string of bad events, that one, I would say. Yeah. But there's one story that we came across with a lighthouse where two guys were there, and it involves death, but maybe... This is the worst one. Well, it was... It's one of the weirdest ones. All right, now we got to get down to my favorite for creep factor lighthouse story <laughs> yeah. uh, before we wrap up this show with our, our brief conclusions, and that's the Smalls Lighthouse. Yeah, actually, this story was sent to me by Marie from The Ark, who has her own show, Whatever Remains podcast. And Yes, uh, oh, by I, the way, you guys got to check that out. It's a new yeah. show, and she's just doing an amazing job with it. No, she's a great narrator, too, on, on top of it all, and good writer. So it's a lot of fun. And, of course, she dives deep into these kind of things and uh, she, different kind of layout. It's one subject in a season, I believe. But I can't remember what we were chatting about. She texted me this story of just, uh, I think, just, again, how treacherous and weird these lighthouse stories can be. And this is one of the most yeah. morbid stories I think we've come across just because of the nature of the station of the light. So this story takes place in 1801. There was these two guys. And first, I want to say that you can find a Wikipedia page on this, but the best write-up on this far and away is by an author named Stephen Liddell, L-I-D-D-E-L-L, or maybe Liddell, Stephen Mm -hmm. Liddell. We'll have the link in our show notes, uh, stephenliddell.co.uk. And uh, he's written a bunch of what look to be really amazing books, including 101 Most Horrible Tortures in History. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, which like is pretty that. great. And yeah. so uh, somehow he he got a fascination with this book, and he's got a really great write-up on it, which we'll have a link to it. But So this story takes place in uh, 1801. There were two lighthouse keepers, both named Thomas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah. it was a two-man team of Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith. And there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. The first thing is, just out of the gate, everyone needs to know, these two were known to argue. They were known to argue with each other. Apparently, that was common knowledge. And so to make things, (laughs) to make matters worse, they're stationed together. 
at one of these lighthouses that is kind of like the Bell Rock or Eddie Stone. It's just the lighthouse. That's all there is. There's no getting away from the other dude. Right. It's like, a tiny rocky island 20 miles west of Wales. And yeah. uh, the design of it is interesting because it actually makes sense. It's pretty smart. There's strong wooden timbers posted upright and at the top is kind of a hut where right. there are living quarters, uh, you know, really tiny, you could say a compartment for the two men to live in. Jeez. And, you know, just being really trapped up there. But the wild waves and the the rough water could pass between the timbers. So, yes, you know, instead of a large solid structure uh, that, as we've seen before with Eddie Stone, could wipe it away in strong waves, this made more sense. But you're also more isolated because you are basically in a tree fort out in the middle of the ocean. Yes, yeah, so it's really hard to get in and out of. And apparently Thomas Griffith got sick while they were posted out there. And they did long posts there, by the way. I guess after what Liddell describes as weeks of torturous illness, Thomas Griffith died in the lighthouse there. And so... <laughs> So now we got this problem because Howell realizes that everyone knows that they argue. Yeah. And he's afraid if he just commits Griffith's body to the sea, everyone will just think he murdered him. So he's like, I got to hang on to him until I can get some help. And apparently he had some uh, carpentry skills. Yeah, he was a cooper, which means he was he a was barrel a maker. Yeah, A barrel maker. So he took apart some of the wood inside the lighthouse and made a coffin for Griffith. And then he was like, well, I can't keep him in here. For obvious reasons, things well, are going to well, get... Well, that's what happened is for a long time, I think, until he couldn't stand it anymore, the body was in the compartment with him. And, you know, where yes. he, while he's wondering, he's got the distress flag raised. And that's the only way that they could communicate back then is through flags. But apparently, you know, ships saw this, but they couldn't get near it. Also, the light was staying lit. He was keeping the light lit yeah, during all of right. this. Yeah, right. So they're, yeah. you know, again, it was treacherous for them to even approach and get that close because they could damage their own ship and get destroyed. So they knew something was wrong, but no, no, he's lighting it, right? It, it couldn't be that right. bad. Right. Except he's in this small compartment with a dead body for, uh, I don't know, a good week or so until it starts to decompose. And then, yeah, he's got to put it in something. Right. So he moves the body and the coffin, I believe, outside. Yes. And hangs it up out there because he's like, I can't deal with this anymore, certainly the odor. Yeah. And that's when things really start to go haywire. The waves start smashing the coffin apart, and um, Griffith's body starts kind of leaning out of it a little bit, apparently. Yeah. And according to Liddell, he's, uh, it almost looks as though he's beckoning towards Howell to uh, <laughs> come out. And apparently yeah. passing ships are also perceiving this as somebody waving at them. Yeah, well, That's... him and uh, Thomas, number one, are waving at ships, but they're too far away. They can't really see what's going on. They can see a guy waving, and there's a distress signal of a flag, but they can't really tell what's going on. And again, what we have here is like a weekend at Bernie situation where this guy's flopping in the wind, <laughs> and it's driving the Thomas, number one, crazy. Thomas Griffith, on the other hand, is just kind of lashed to the railing here where the coffin boards have been smashed apart and are now into the sea yeah. from the bad waves and weather. So he's just kind of dangling there. Apparently, this went on for months, and ships kept coming by, and they saw what was left of Griffiths, but they just, like we said, seemed like he was waving, so they would wave back and couldn't seem to get any information from him. And they would just go back and be like, well, I don't know. He's, the guy's waving. 
Yeah, and I mean, so, no, they, they try, like I said, they tried to get out there. Nobody could land because each time they get close, these massive waves and uh, swells and, and, and horrible wind would whip up and they were in danger of grounding themselves. So yeah. they could only get so close. Uh, and so months and months go by. Eventually, Hal is rescued, but it's too late. At that point, he has so completely lost his mind that after he got to the mainland, Friends said they could no longer recognize him. He was just never the same and had pretty much gone insane living at Smalls Island with the decaying body of his former lighthouse mate and person that he didn't like. He was afraid (laughs) he was going to be accused of murdering. Yeah. Well, that went on for four months. So imagine that. four months. You've got a dead dangling body just outside your window. So I imagine you're not escaping the smell either. And Liddell points out that there was a movie made about this. I guess it's a European market movie, so it might be hard to get here. I see it's on Amazon Prime, but the price is listed in pounds, so it might not be U.S. available, but it's called The Lighthouse. So uh, apparently it's a pretty compelling film. It's got good reviews, so... That might be something I might check out tonight when I go to bed. Yeah. See if, uh, <laughs> there you go. Dr- good to sleep on, right? <laughs> but he makes an interesting note, Stephen Liddell, is that the policy for crewing lighthouses after that immediately changed. And until they were automated in the, in the most recent years, lighthouses were then always staffed with three people. Right. So you have a third person who can help you deal with that, and it's just more safe. Yeah, this was 100 years before the Flannan Isles disappearance, so... Right, right. Yeah. Again, it's like there's a lot of romance, a lot of mystery. People love the idea of lighthouses, but, uh, you know, it's not always what it's cracked up to be. Well, let's get down to our final conclusions here, and we're going to wrap this up. I think there's a couple of things that stand out to me in the interview with uh, Keith and from reading his book and all the research that we've done... I think it's significant that, as we said, that uh, James Duckett had been fined for damage to equipment. I think that is a plausible motivation for him going out. But by the same token, as Keith said in his interview, we know that they had lunch based on the information that was on the board. And so that means they would have been finishing up around 2 p.m. And he said at that time of year, the sun would have been setting around 3.30 so it doesn't make sense. And he also said the general rule was you did everything in the morning. You got up yeah. early. You did everything in the morning. In the afternoon, you slept or did things inside the lighthouse. And you certainly didn't go down close to sunset to either one of the landings to do anything right. unless a, somebody was coming, which obviously they wouldn't schedule for that time. So that is the real question here. What could have taken the PLK, Duckett, out of the lighthouse so late in the day when also, as Keith said, It takes probably at least 10 minutes to get down to the West Landing and probably 15 or 20 to get back up. In addition to that, the West Landing would be in disuse at this time because the prevailing winds were from the West. And uh, no boats were coming to that side anyway. But let's say that something was wrong. They went down to secure a crane or some gear to avoid a fine. Then the idea would be, you know, according to Aldebert, who later did his own investigation while he was a lightkeeper, you know, that maybe Duckett got swept out by a rogue wave. So then maybe the assistant lightkeeper, Thomas Marshall, goes to rescue Duckett, but he can't go alone, so he enlists MacArthur to come with him, and a second rogue wave gets them. But this is strange, too, because the first thing is rogue waves are are pretty rare. They are definitely worse in storms, but they do not require a storm. They have appeared 
independent of storms, at least according to lore. What's fascinating about rogue waves, and we talked about this back either with uh, Mary Celeste or Queen Mary, it was only in 1995 that the very first rogue wave was scientifically documented. That's called the Dropner wave, D-R-A-U-P-N-E-R. Mm-hmm. It's also known as the New Year's wave because it was detected off the coast of Norway in the North Sea on January 1st, 1995. Now, this was during bad weather. At the time, the waves were measuring 40 feet, but this uh, buoy picked up a wave at 84 feet. So it's pretty amazing. Prior to that measurement, according to Wikipedia, no instrument recorded evidence for rogue waves existed, just anecdotal evidence provided by those who had encountered them at sea. It goes on to point out minor damage was inflicted on the platform during this event, confirming the validity of the reading made by a downwards pointing laser sensor. I know there were some crazy tall waves, not rogue, but uh, the sea state waves during the three storms that converged for the perfect storm story. The way that they knew that the waves were so tall was because they lost the signal from the buoys and the trough, that would have meant that the trough that the buoys was in had to be at least 80 or 100 feet deep. I remember that from reading the perfect storm which is an amazing book, by the way, if you're looking for something to read, you like this maritime stuff. (laughs) So that idea of this rogue wave, and now then the other thing that Keith said is these waves are doubling in size when they impact the island. So if, let's say, a 75-foot wave smacked into the west side of the island, it might easily clear 110 feet, which we know there was severe damage at 110 feet up. However, well, there's two things. First of all, someone always is supposed to stay in the lighthouse, right? Also, MacArthur went out without his gear. And why is that? Why would he have gone out without his gear? Now, one of the things that Keith talked about was maybe he was manning the steam engine at the top that ran the uh, cart up and down from the landing, but it still doesn't seem likely. And also, it doesn't seem likely that they would have gone out so late in the day. So the idea that Duckett went out just because he was worried about being fined, and then somehow they all three wound up getting killed, it just seems like a tall order. Now, then there's all these people that will say, well, it was a rogue wave for sure. What ha- all three of them got caught in a rogue wave. Now, let's also remember that McCloskey talks about the gentleman that he interviewed who was uh, 6'2 or 6'4, and he said 16 stone and was carrying a refrigerator and got picked up off the ground by the wind one day. Off the ground, carrying a refrigerator. That's a clear indication of the kind of winds you could expect there. So there's all kinds of forces at play that could easily have killed any one of them individually, maybe killing them all at the same time, it's hard to say. But when we come down to the rogue wave theory, this is the other part of that. It's that uh, according to the meteorologists and all the records and all the research that's been done, the worst of the weather that affected the island hit it on December 17th. And that storm was pulling in 70 to 75 foot waves regularly. That was December 17th. The lighthouse was not lit on the 15th. And according to the board, the chalkboard that had the the daily information that hadn't yet been put into the log, they were active up until the 15th. So the presumption there is that all three of them disappeared on the 15th. And I'd like to reiterate, because we brought it back up in terms of folkloric nature, the chair was not turned over. There was not a meal on the table. That's from the poem and from the, um, the exaggerations made to this legend over the years. The kitchen was neatly cleaned up after lunch. So they had gotten through the meal and it had been reset. So something happened to them that caused them all to disappear on the 15th. If a rogue wave came in on the 15th, it would be a little less likely because there was a gale that day, but it was kind of standard fare. It was a pretty normal gale for that area for that time of year. 
The 17th was when this storm came through that was just a half step below a hurricane. So when you arrive at the island and you look at all the damage and you see that there's damage 110 feet up and the ropes and the bent metal railing and all of that, Keith's point and our point after doing this research and looking at all this, the big picture of this, is that all of that damage seems like it happened days after they had disappeared. Yeah, two days. Right. Two days after they disappeared. And then there were additional strong storms, not as strong as the 17th, but there were additional strong storms between the 17th and the time that it took Muirhead to get to the island, or when Moore first went to the island, which was, I think, uh, the 26th, maybe. So Hmm. it had been a couple of weeks at that point. So all kinds of things could have happened to the island. So at this point, you're looking at even more confusion about what would have killed these three men. And I think that it's fascinating, you know, and we have an intelligence analyst, or we have a couple of them actually, in the Astonishing Research Corps. One of our newest members of the Corps, whose name is Keish Booker, uh, did what is called an analysis of competing hypotheses, where he took the theories proposed by the Research Corps and put them into this matrix to sort of determine what was most probable and what was least probable based on all the information that the Research Corps came up with. We're going to post uh, this matrix online. It'll be part of the uh, notes associated with this episode. But the most probable and consistent idea is that it was something weather-related. That's the most probable. However, the second most probable, based on everything we came up with, is something supernatural. So, (laughs) But he also said, you know, he kind of slapped this thing together. It's not clinical, but it's just kind of a look at these ideas. Now, as for what I personally think, I mean, you heard Keith's conclusions, Forrest, you know, in the interview, it seemed like he was open to the idea that there may have been some kind of altercation and that while weather may have been a factor, it doesn't seem like it was necessarily the deciding factor. And it's hard to know what happened because that storm wiped the evidence clean when it came a couple days later. Right. And and one thing that Keith has said that I, I really like, because it's an easy thing to fall back on, and you know, sometimes it's true, but in my opinion, it's not always true, but people rely on it as a crutch of sorts, is, uh, is Occam's razor. It's like, well, it's always got to be the simplest explanation. It's always going to be the simplest explanation. And that's not always true. But it's something that easy, I think, that people like to to say and uh, to find a, you know, an explanation for things that's more comfortable rather than the confusing and often scary prospect of multiple things happening that you cannot account for or that just remain a mystery. And that's what he's saying here is that, okay, what is the simplest thing? Well, obviously weather, it's got weather and it's got massive waves and we know that that's happened and it's taken people away. And so, yeah, that's a factor here, but if you take the analysis of the weather data plugged into that model, it's not making complete sense. All the puzzle pieces aren't lining up, and you may want to jam those together to get them fit or just leave them where they lay. But in Keith's case, he's saying, I think there's an outside factor here where where personality and the human factor is in play here combined with the treacherous location that's slippery, that's got high winds, that can lift you off your feet, create a wind vortex, whatever it is, something prodded these guys to be in that situation where where they were outside of the safety of the building. So something had to have done that, but that's just plain detective work there. They didn't get sucked out the window. So they were outside when they should not have been. 
you know, and then the rest is speculation. But what we do know is that, yes, uh, the most likely time for something weather-related happened two days later. So there you go. We've got more questions than answers in this case. Well, and I want to reiterate, and this is something that Quaid pointed out in the Astonishing Research Corps, is that uh, with regard to rogue waves, they rarely occur at more than one at a time. Yeah, So right. the idea that one could have gotten Duckett and then a second one could have gotten Marshall and MacArthur as they were trying to assist Duckett, or if one had gotten Duckett and Marshall, and then a second one got MacArthur. Yeah. I mean, Birth, I guess that's, that's the a possibility. Theory. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, MacArthur was the occasional, so maybe he was less experienced. Yeah. Additionally, we have to remember that MacArthur, as the occasional, never expected to be out there very long. Right. But Ross, who he was replacing, what had become very, very sick, and. So MacArthur had been out there for several months, and as we pointed out in part one, if he had been a drinker, he probably would have been separated from his alcohol. Even if he had smuggled some in, it would have been gone by that point. And he also was known to be a hothead. So could there have been some kind of altercation? It's hard to say, but I'm just going to say where my money is, my verdict on this case is that an act of God concealed an act of man. That's going to wrap up our series on the disappearance of the Flannan Isles Lightkeepers. We're dark next week because we'll be in Kansas for the Amelia Earhart Festival, but we will be back the week after that with the first part of an exciting new series. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Galaxy Wide, I'm Zork. My voice in perpetuity. S-A-M-H-A-N-N-A-H. Astonishing legend. B-I-N-K-S. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 